Call the regular session to order. Roll call, please. Councilmember Duran. Here. Councilmember McReynolds. Here. Councilmember Johnson. Councilmember Johnson. Here. Is here. Councilmember Halter. Here. Councilmember Campos. Yes. Deputy Mayor Sanchez Palacios. Here. And Mayor Schrader. Here. Okay, seven members present. We do have a quorum. So I'll ask the uh, interim city manager to say, uh, give us the Pledge of Allegiance. Stand if you are able. Say after me. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Special presentations and announcements. Mr. City Clerk. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have one special presentation this evening, and we would like to uh, invite up Ms. Stacy Rionda, the CEO, the new CEO of the Ventura County Fairgrounds, to introduce herself. Good evening. Thank you all for having me here. I have had the pleasure of meeting some of you, but not all of you. So I would like to introduce myself. I am Stacy Rianda. I am the new CEO here at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. I came on board um, July 6th. I didn't officially take over until September 1st. And trust me when I tell you, I had to hit the ground running with this place. <laughs> it has been an adventure, but uh, we have an amazing team and we're doing some great things. So uh, my background, I came from Fresno where I was the deputy manager at the Big Fresno Fair, which is the fourth largest fair in the state for 21 years. Um, I was deputy manager up until the pandemic when I became the co-CEO with my um, partner, Lori King. We ran the place together for a couple of years and then this opportunity presented itself and I took it. So I'm very happy to be in Ventura and part of this community. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what we're doing at the fairgrounds because that has been in the news a lot lately. Um, I wanna tell you what our plan is. Our plan is to continue to be here standing by ready to serve our community. When wildfires force evacuations, we will be here. When mudslides decimate neighborhoods, we will be here. When the unhoused are being rescued from the river and a space to land the helicopter and get people to safety is needed, we will be here. When an international pandemic rocks our world and space is needed for testing and vaccinations, we will be here. When you need some place to go and something to do to forget the past few years, we will be here. We currently have 127 events scheduled as of last week for the fairgrounds for this year. That's not event days, that's actual events. So event days are even more than that. We are trending to have our biggest sales year on record so far. We just signed our largest sponsorship deal in the history of the fairgrounds, which we're very proud of. Our plan is to continue to rebuild the fairgrounds. When you're in the mass gathering business and you can't have mass gatherings for close to three years, it hurts. It hurts your bottom line and it hurts your facility because you don't have the revenue needed to do what you need to do to keep it up. 
you are forced to go into survival mode and drastically cut all expenses and lay off employees. And that is exactly what happened. But if that didn't happen, we wouldn't still be here. So we have to remember that. We are very much still in a rebuilding phase, but definitely on the upswing. Some of the things we're working on now, um, just general maintenance throughout the grounds, trying to improve the little things that we can right now, such as painting, replacing doors and locks and windows, and just small things that aren't super sexy, but they make a difference. We're working on our landscaping, making sure that our grass is cut, that the weeds are pulled, that trash is picked up. We're painting uh, fences and speed bumps, and we've done a lot of work over in our beach lot. So we are doing the small things that will add up. And we're working on staffing and rebuilding our team, which is very important. We've already started in our maintenance department. We've started in our sales department. Now we're moving on to the front office. We're beefing up our website because we will be pushing everybody to our website for ticket sales and we're expecting a lot of increased traffic. Uh, we do have a new PR firm on board. The Tolan Group is with us and um, they're just really bringing our PR and marketing to a new level, which is a level we need to be at. We appreciate them and them coming on board. Um, that's why it's important to beef up our website so that we can accommodate the traffic that we will be getting. And of course, we're working on the fair. We are already booking entertainment. We are redoing some of our stage areas and reworking our layout so that there's something different. The death of any fair is to have people come and say, I've seen it, it's all the same. That will never happen here as long as I am here. It will always be different. It has to be different and better every single time. So our plan is to continue also to work on grants and with the foundations to generate funds to make these improvements, which include upgrades to our facilities for emergency preparedness. There are grants available that we will be seeking. Uh, we need to bring our buildings up to where they need to be, commercial kitchens, HVAC, all, all that stuff, so that we, when we are needed in the event of an emergency, we are prepared, as we should be. Our plan is to preserve the tradition and the heritage that is the Ventura County Fair so that we can continue to be here for our community for another 149 years. Again, thank you so much for your time tonight. It is a pleasure for me to be here. I look forward to working with all of you. And if there is anything that I can do for any of you, please don't hesitate to reach out. I am always available to everyone and my door is always open. Thank you. Thanks, Stacy. <clears throat> I thought we had city council meetings tough, but after I was at your meeting last week, um, this is a walk in the park, so. Um, city attorney. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We did have closed session tonight on three of the four items listed in the agenda, and uh, we are continuing after the meeting tonight, but uh, as of now, there are no reportable action. Thank you. City council communications. Councilmember Johnson. And thank you, and if you could pull up my slides, please. Thank you so much. Uh, I've got on here, uh, poorly formatted, but uh, some of the upcoming events I've got going on, uh, chances to uh, talk to the public if there's anything you wanna talk about on. 
Tuesday, that's tomorrow, 6 p.m., we'll be at Snapper Jacks on Telegraph. If you ride the bus or walk, I will buy you a taco. Uh, on Saturday, March 4th, from 8 to noon, this is the community gleaning that I talked about last time, hosted by the College Area Community Council. It was postponed because of rain. The details will be on the next slide. On March 11th, that's a Saturday from 10 to noon, that's, that's we'll be doing the uh, monthly second Saturday cleanup in District 3. Again, we'll meet at the water store at Victoria and Ralston. Anybody who's been driving up and down Victoria has seen um, just how much tagging has been going on in that area. Also that night at 4.30 p.m., I was glad to see uh, Ms. Rianda here. Yeah, I was at the uh, special meeting last week at the fairgrounds, and I was very impressed by the enthusiasm of the people who go to the Ventura Raceway. Uh, so I will be at the raceway on Saturday, March 11th. I'll be there at 4.30 p.m. It's sprint cars and, and other things. Having never attended the raceway, I can't pretend to know anything about it. Uh, admission is $18 for adults, $15 for students, seniors, and military. And then on Tuesday, March 14th, from 7 to 8 p.m., do a meet and greet, but this one will be a focus on Ethics, Accountability, and Transparency meeting at Duke's on Seaward, just because I haven't been there in a long, long time. Thank you. We, could we go to the next slide? And this is the community gleaning that I spoke of last at our last meeting two weeks ago. Um, this is an opportunity if you've got uh, fruits, vegetables in your garden, if you've got that bounty and you're willing to share it. The College Area Community Council is partnering with Food Forward and sponsoring a community gleaning. So if you bring your excess fruits and vegetables, uh, they will go into sort of the pipeline that is used for various food pantries and, and support programs like that. And, and I know um, most people have, that have fruit trees, very little of the fruit seems to get eaten. Uh, so, so I do hope that we can have a bountiful harvest for this. And then if we could have the next slide, please. Thank you, and this is my report on where we are in external committees. I am the Fair Board Liaison, um, and so I did attend the presentation by Pacific Sports Group. I was, I was there also when they presented at the Westside Community Council. Um, these are my personal comments, as it says on the slide, but um, I'm glad that the Fair, is, the Fair Board is continuing as they have been. I, I will say that I think the, the presentation was poorly conceived. Um, the, the meeting that happened um, at the fairgrounds was raucous. Um, there were people in the audience that were rude. There were presenters who were rude. Um, and so I'm just going to say it was poorly presented and poorly received. I also serve as this council's representative on RDP 21. That's regional defense planning. Uh, RDP 21, you know, a big part of what that is, is lobbying in Washington, D.C. for funding for Naval Base Ventura County and, and Point Magoo. Um, they really look for having city council members that can go on the D.C. trip. The, tri the trip is this month. I will not be attending, unfortunately, but I look forward to reporting back um, how RDP 21's lobbying trip to D.C. went. And then finally, the Ventura Unified School District Declining Enrollment Committee. I am the chair of this. Um, our next meeting is going to be Thursday, March 2nd from 5 to 7 p.m. at the VUSD offices. 
at 255 West Stanley. And I just came from a meeting preparing for this next meeting. And I think at this point, the declining enrollment committee has reached the point of, of acknowledging that the declining enrollment is a reality and there's not much that the school district can do about it. This is really a function of shifting demographics in the city of Ventura driven by the housing crisis. And so what the committee is going to be looking at this year, at this next meeting, we're going to set the goals for the year, but it's going to be um, how, to, how the district can, can move ahead um, even, if, um, even if they stop the decline, what changes are gonna be necessary to make sure that uh, the school can continue to provide the core services that everybody deserves. And so that's my report on my external committees. I've got my Facebook and Instagram up there, my phone number. If anybody needs anything, please call me. Thank you, Mayor, for the opportunity. Mr. McReynolds. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that the General Plan Advisory Committee is working on land use alternatives, and we will have two special meetings next week on Tuesday, March 6th, and uh, Wednesday, March 7th, here in the community room. So I encourage anybody that's interested to be here and uh, take a look at that. Had an opportunity to meet with the Ventura Port District as the council liaison. Uh, took a tour of the port, went out on the water, learned about the sand trap, everything that goes on there. I would say it's an absolutely fascinating operation, but the thing that surprised me the most is that there are 1,000 people that live in the harbor on boats that I had no idea lived out there. So uh, that was really good to know. Uh, for our sergeant at arms, I'm starting the police uh, community academy uh, next week, so you probably don't have to come to the next council meeting. Uh, and then uh, the East Ventura Community Council uh, still needs leadership, so if you are interested in being a leader with the East Ventura Community Council, uh, please get on their website. We have a representative here. I saw her somewhere. If you want to talk, uh, had an opportunity to meet with the Ventura Unified School District Superintendent, Dr. Castro kind of what their concerns and thoughts are, and uh, also met with the CAUSE youth leaders last week. So thank you, that's it. Ms. Campos. Could you put up the slide? Okay, I'd like to let the community know some of the activities I recently participated in as your District 1 representative. Um, Right now along the avenue, we're having outreach and preparation meetings for Avenue Days 2024. Anyone from the west side that wants to get involved in that, you can follow um, 805 West Park on Instagram to get information about the meetings. I met with the Animal Services Board, of which I'm a member last week, and they desperately need volunteers to walk dogs, and brush and pet cats. The Air Pollution Control District meets monthly to identify areas in the county that need better monitoring because air pollution continues to stand as an everyday threat to our entire community with pesticides and um, other toxic things in the air. One up, upcoming program is going to reduce the cost of in EV charging stations, and I hope our city will participate in the grants to do that. Um, March 1st, the Westside Community Council will meet at Bell Arts at 6.30 p.m. March 11th, the neighborhood cleanup for the avenue takes place, and that'll start from 8.30 to noon. 
There'll be dumpsters at 71 Bell Way for all your refuse except what is toxic. And then hopefully we can finish early and come to the St. Patrick's Day Parade, which is scheduled on the 11th of March as well. And um, one thing I left off the slide is um, the Red Cross is asking for volunteers at this time. With the weather as unpredictable as it is, and they're trying to work with the county and city and different areas to um, create a better shelter system for the unsheltered population. Um, anyone who wants to volunteer can email Jordan Barney, J-O-R-D-O-N dot Barney at redcross.org, and he can tell you how to uh, get involved. And then I'll be available to meet anyone interested at the Simpson Street door of the Avenue Library Sundays. Note the change of time, 2 to 5. And um, I hope to see you all there. Councilmember Halter. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I just wanted to say first that I've been uh, doing what my partner loves doing best, and that's traveling quite a bit. And when I travel, I have two things usually on my mind and always have for many years is, one, I love to see how other people live and how other communities um, showcase their city and what's unique about the place that I'm visiting. And two, I love being a, an ambassador for Ventura, a city that I'm, I'm passionately in love with. And um, uh, this time, once again, for the many, many times in my travels, I went to a city, Mexico City, where uh, I once again saw something I yearned for in Ventura, and that's the opportunity to showcase our art, our culture, our history, all the things that are so uniquely Ventura. And the more we can find opportunities to showcase those things that are different for our community, uh, the more enriched our lives will be as Venturans. So I look forward to continue trying to bring that, those sort of activities here to Ventura and those sort of monuments and dedications to Ventura. But with that said, um, I would like to announce that I'd like to close tonight's meeting in honor of two very close friends of mine. Because of the things that I've been involved with in my life and what I've just mentioned, my appreciation and value for culture, diversity, history, uh, the arts, gardens, uh, the uniqueness of our community. I have been very honored and fortunate to travel in many different circles in our community. And two people who um, have been very dear to me in the last um, 20, 25 years and very close to me passed away. And one of them was Connie Bear. Connie Bear uh, was a very good mentor, very involved in legal activities. Um, I had mentioned to some of you in the past that when we looked at the AIDS pandemic early on, and I mentioned before it was the women of the LGBTQ community who came forward to help those of us that were suffering from that pandemic make it through it. And Connie Bear was on the forefront of that. And for that, I'll be forever grateful, and she will always be in my mind. I'd like to close tonight's meeting in honor of Connie Bear. And secondly is um, Barbara Bean. Barbara Bean is a, was a very close friend as well, both of them. I uh, live long, good lives and very enriched lives. Uh, Barbara Bean uh, was a school teacher here in Ventura for many, many years, raised her family. Her husband was very involved in Ventura. And she also loved her gardens and was very uh, uh, involved with the Ventura Botanical Gardens. So for that, I'm very, very grateful for her. 
She hired me years ago to do her landscaping, and she became one of my favorite customers to drop in on and say hi to and to visit and to uh, just share memories and to share her knowledge with me. So I want to, in honor of both of them, uh, truly fantastic citizens of this community, people that's enriched my life, so I'm sure many more like to close tonight's meeting in honor of both of them. Thank you. Councilmember Duran. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say that on um, March 1st, this Wednesday, I'll be with uh, Councilmember Mick Reynolds at the Police uh, Community Academy. And uh, on March 7th, I'll be at Lemonwood Mobile Home Park at 4.30 speaking. On March the 10th, I'll be at the Arbor Day Tree Planting in Branca Park. And on March 11th, I will also be at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, and I'll be walking with Tender Life Maternity Home. It'll be the first year that they've ever entered, and that is a home for homeless pregnant women and their, and their babies. And uh, over the last uh, five years, they've had over 40 babies born at Tender Life Maternity Home. So we have a lot of alumni coming, and they're going to be riding with their, walking with their babies in the strollers, and it's going to be a wonderful, a wonderful time. I wanted to um, say thank you to Miss Leona Rollins, who is the housing manager here for the city and all the work she puts in with her team for the foul weather shelter we did activate on february 23rd and i just wanted to say that thank you to journey church for providing 160 meals for those three days and uh, water's edge restaurant provided 25 meals for those that did not get rooms uh, we are activating again tomorrow night and community presbyterian church has already gotten their 125 meals put together and Mission Church is putting together the 25 meals for those that will not get room. So I just wanted to say thank you for all of their support and for all of us working together. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Sanchez Palacios. Just on time, thank you. Um, and just briefly, thank you, Councilmember Halter, for bringing up um, Connie Bear. I too uh, was able to work with her through the Ventura County Women's Political Council. She was certainly someone that um, always made her voice known and um, really just helped, I think, a lot of people throughout Ventura. I quickly just wanted to mention that last week, um, a couple of my colleagues and I, we, we were at the Economic Development Subcommittee meeting. We kicked it off. And just learning from both um, Carrie and, and Meredith, I just really want to thank them for the work that they've been doing in that department um, to ensure that Ventura continues to get good businesses and that we continue to move forward um, with our economic development plan. So thank you for that. And as well, just thank our um, parks and rec and public works for the cleanup and the work that they've had to do during the windy days and our rainy days here in Ventura. Thank you so much for um, listening to our pleas of there's a tree down, there's a pothole here and whatnot. So really just wanted to thank staff for, for the work that they've been doing. Thank you. I probably need to apologize to city council. I got in trouble last week at a Buena High School basketball game. Uh, it was a semifinal game. I was very impressed with how hard the Bulldogs played. Unfortunately, five students caught me before the game. They were playing Pius X High School where I graduated some few years ago. I tried to hide that I had a Pius X bright red shirt on. The students came over and asked me if I wasn't the mayor of Ventura. <laughs> so um, I was very impressed with how hard they played, how well they were coached. Unfortunately for the city of Ventura, Buena did not win the game. 
The students, however, and I uh, made up after the game. They ended up taking selfies, and they said, as long as I'm willing to come to one of their or a couple of their baseball games and I don't cheer for the other team, I'm okay on their side. So I felt good about that, and thank you for that. Um, city manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. If the clerk will pull up uh, the single PowerPoint slide that we have prepared for tonight. Uh, one thing we're very excited about, join our first ever coffee chats with the Community Development Department. Last week, uh, Council may recall, we had coffee with a cop uh, at Cafe Facel. That was really well attended. In a similar vein, we're doing one with our Community Development Department. So again, just like, just like last week, this one will be an opportunity to get to connect with staff members on a more uh, informal basis, learn about what's going on in our city, ask questions, get to know the staff most importantly, and strengthen those relationships between uh, the community that we serve every day. So that'll be next Friday, March 3rd, uh, from 8 to 10 a.m. Not next Friday, that's this coming Friday. Um, we'll have future coffee dates, coffee chat dates. Uh, you can see the calendar at cityofventura.ca.gov forward slash community development. The St. Patrick's Day Parade, this was mentioned a couple times already. The Elks Lodge uh, is set to host their annual Ventura County St. Patrick's Day Parade on Saturday, March 11th. That'll be at 10 a.m. Uh, most of us already know that parade route, but it'll begin at Lincoln and Main and continue towards uh, uh, Ventura at First Street. So um, you can find route maps, parking details, and more at VenturaStPatrick'sDayParade.com. Uh, on Friday, March 17th, from 6 to 8 p.m., pilots from Point Magoo uh, Airshow U.S. Navy Blue Angels, U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds will be right here in downtown Ventura at Maine and California Streets. Uh, the pilots will be introduced on stage, and then they will make their way down to meet with the public and sign autographs. So if you want to get uh, pilots' autographs, mark your calendars for March 17th right here in downtown Ventura. We do have a busy March coming up. We have three meetings scheduled, March 13th, 20th, and 27th. Uh, they are busy uh, business meetings for each one of those. March 20th is, in fact, a workshop, uh, so we'll make good use of our, our time there. Uh, we'll be discussing budget session number two, and then we're going to be starting a series on parking. So if you're interested in parking, not just in downtown, but in the city uh, in general, you may want to attend uh, the first parking workshop, which will be one of those two latter meetings in March. I do want to make one slight correction. Uh, Councilmember McReynolds made a comment about the GPAC meetings uh, next week. Those two dates are Monday, March 6th, and Tuesday, March 7th. So uh, you can see those dates and more dates at planventura.com. Uh, again, Monday and Tuesday of next week, uh, right here in this building. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. That's all I have. On to Mr. Mayor, may I ask a question of the city sure. manager? First, I, I want to thank staff um, for the coffee with community development, the coffee chats. It's fantastic. I appreciate that it's going to be a whole series of the monthly things. Um, at this next one, which staff members will be there? Well, minimally our director, but let me invite her up and she can share who plans on attending. Thank you, Councilmember Johnson. It will be myself as well as our managers. So Leona Rollins, Jonathan Wood, Sean Huff, and myself will be there. And for the public, can you explain what their titles are? Sure. Uh, Leona Rollins is our housing services manager. Sean Huff is our chief building official. And Jonathan Wood is our permit services and enforcement manager. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for doing this. 
On to consent. We have 14 consent items. Um, Council members, do you have questions on pulling or questions or comments? Uh, Council member Johnson. Thank you. Comments only on items three and eight. Three and eight comments. Other council members? Council member Johnson, number three. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> council member Campos. I have a question only on number seven. Number seven. Councilmember Johnson. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, just a comment. Um, you know, I, I've raised this issue before about these $59,000 contracts coming back with an amendment. Uh, we do see this. I, I appreciate um, why the need, why we would have the need for this with the legal services for the inclusionary housing ordinance, considering that um, it's it's been delayed for for about a year, and so it's understandable that if. Um, that the, that the original $59,950 um, wasn't adequate, and so it's a small, um, it's a small increase. I just, um, I think it's important that we call some of these things out. Thank you, Mayor. Councilmember Compost, number seven. Um, I just want to, to make note that we're talking in number seven about 10 million or close to 11 million in grants that the city's applying for, for several departments, but we never are applying for the large grants that are out there for services for the unsheltered population. And I want to encourage our city and our staff to start doing more in that regard. Councilmember Johnson on number eight. Thank you, Mayor. If I may speak briefly on number seven as well. Go for it. I, I would add, um, I would, I would point out to Councilmember Compost that uh, I'm very glad that the city did pursue the home art funding. Um, $1.2 million, I think it is, that, that we'll be looking at. Um, but I, I certainly agree that um, we, we, we need all the grant money we, we can get for, for services. Thank you. On to, on to number eight, again, this is a number, another one. The original contract was for, at the time, the, the spending limit the discretionary spending limit was $50,000. I think this one, the original contract was for $49,999. And, and we've gone through amendments and we're getting to a point where this contract that was kept below the $50,000 threshold has now reached a point of half a million dollars. And, and that's, I, all that said, you know, I certainly support it. I, I understand why um, Bureau Veritas makes sense. And, and really I bring this up because I wanna thank staff for, for putting all that in the staff report because that, that for me is the most important thing, just the transparency. And so I congratulate staff on that. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Um, City Clerk, do we have any comments? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have one public speaker card uh, on item number two and we did receive communications via email on items number five and nine. Those have been posted to the supplemental packet. Our speaker this evening is Spencer Noren. Thank you, Michael. Good evening, Mayor, council members, staff, residents, most importantly. I believe the government works in three different ways. You have staff, you have elected officials, and you have volunteers. Congratulations to all the volunteers stepping up today. 
we know what an important job it is. So really, thank you from the residents. And anybody watching me speak right now, I want to encourage you to volunteer. You're qualified. If you're in this room right now, you're qualified. If you're hearing me speak, you're more than qualified and you're involved in the process. So please, again, thank you for being involved. I know we need more commissioners. We need more appointees coming up. So I want to encourage the public to get involved. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Noren. And Mr. Mayor, that does conclude our public comment for the consent items. I did just want to point out that on items number two and item number five, we do have appointments being made this evening. On item number two, I'd like to, uh, if the appointees are in the room, I'd like to invite them to stay for the adoption of the consent items. For our appointments recommendation committee, we have uh, two. We have Susan Stratton being recommended for appointment to the Historic Preservation Committee. And we have Jerry Ruby being appointed to the Measure O Citizens Oversight Committee for item number two. Item number five, we do have four planning commissioner recommendations this evening for District 1, Lucas Sucker. For uh, District 4, Jenny Lagerquest. For District 5, Shanna Farley. And for District 6, Estelle Busa. So if you are in the room, I would ask for you to hang tight for the adoption of the consent items, and then we'll invite you up for a, uh, a photo opportunity and your appointment, uh, a certificate of appointment. Thank you, so I'll go Mayor. to, I'll accept the motion or entertain one. So moved. Second. Second. Questions? Roll call, please, roll vote. Okay, on the consent items, go ahead and enter. Enter your vote now. Looks like we're waiting on one more vote. If you wouldn't mind entering those votes and locking it. Perfect, all votes have been entered. Okay, seven ayes and the motion carries. So I would first like to invite up our uh, appointments recommendation committee appointees and I'll invite the chair of that committee, Council Member McReynolds and Mayor Schrader uh, down here, we'll invite up Susan Stratton if you are in attendance, or Jerry Ruby if you are in attendance. Go ahead and we're going to hang out right back here. Go ahead and come on up. Okay, perfect. Congratulations, Jerry, for the Measure O Citizens Oversight Committee. Next, what we'll do is we're gonna invite up the planning commissioners, district by district, to receive your certificate of appointment and a picture with your appointing council member. So uh, if you are in attendance for District 1, council member Compost's appointee, Lucas Zucker. I don't see Lucas. Lucas, if you're here, okay. For District 4, for Deputy Mayor Sanchez-Palacios, we have Jenny Lagerquest. Uh, Jenny, if you're here, 
Doesn't look like Jenny's here either. Uh, I'll just note that it wasn't required that they be in attendance. So if you are here, uh, that's great. If you're on virtually as well, feel free to raise your hand. I don't see anyone on there. So next, what, what I'd like to do is uh, bring up Shanna Farley, uh, appointee for District 5 for Councilmember McReynolds to the Planning Commission. All right, and then for District 6 with Councilmember Duran, we have Estelle Busa. I'll go ahead and invite Estelle up now. Okay, and thanks again and congratulations to our planning commissioners. Mr. Mayor, it looks like one of our attendees online uh, has noted that they wanted to speak on item number five. I know we've already taken public comment on the consent items, but I wanted to defer to you. They, they submitted their comment uh, online last minute, so I missed it as I was reading the names. Okay, Carol Spector, I'm gonna move you over right now, Carol, for item number five. Thank you for that, Mr. Mayor. Okay, Carol, you should be able to unmute yourself. Okay, thank you so much. This was quick. Um, best wishes to the new and returning planning commissioners. Your volunteer expertise and effort is much appreciated. I, it's a quick appreciation to Mayor Schroeder for listening to the public and retaining an experienced and qualified planning commissioner. That was it. Just wanted to say thank you and good wishes, and uh, I hope your inclusionary housing discussion goes well. Good night. Okay, Mr. Mayor, that concludes our consent items. Okay, on to inclusionary housing program ordinance. Um, City, Mr. Sister, City Clerk, um, have we met all noticing requirements? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Yes, this item has been adequately noticed. So I'll now open the public hearing, and I think we start with a staff presentation. Good evening, Mayor and City Council members. I'm going to talk through this as I'm pulling up the presentation. Um, 
excuse my multitasking. Netta Zayer, Acting Community Development Director. I am joined this evening with Leona Rollins, um, the uh, Housing Services Manager. We will be giving the presentation on the Inclusionary Housing Ordinance, as well as um, I am joined this evening virtually by Ethan Walsh from BBK, who is the um, attorney consultant that has been assisting us with the inclusionary housing ordinance. Uh, also joined this evening with, by Kathy Head uh, with KMA uh, Associates, who is also um, a consultant that's been assisting us on the inclusionary housing ordinance. Uh, Kathy will be assisting us in doing part of the presentation um, this evening. Apologize. Thank you for your patience. Um, we'll dive right in. I, just to give a uh, quick background on the inclusionary housing program goals, um, staff by the direction of city council began work on the inclusionary housing program after its goal setting discussions. And this is an item that has been on city council's goals for um, several years now. And the intention that staff approached this with was to really develop the strongest requirements allowed by state law that could be justify, justified by financial analysis. State law now requires that when inclusionary housing programs are adopted by cities, that they don't inadvertently become a constraint to the development of, of housing projects, meaning that their inclusionary requirements are so strong that it becomes an impediment. And so financial analysis has been done to make sure that we are not inadvertently creating a constraint to housing. Another goal in approaching this housing inclusionary housing program was also to fulfill our regional housing needs assessment or our arena numbers that are allocated by the state. Um, in the six cycle housing element, which is the cycle we are currently in, that's between 2021 and 2029, I've listed those uh, inclusion, those low income affordable units that uh, are allocated for the city to plan for on the screen that range from extremely low to moderate income levels. And so this also is a uh, means in which to help meet these affordable unit numbers through this program. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Ms. Rollins, who will go through the, the rest of staff's presentation. So we're going to start with defining what is inclusionary housing. So inclusionary housing programs are local policies that help facilitate the production of affordable housing. It requires income-restricted housing within a market rate project. It provides housing affordability to lower-income households. These, this includes the following categories, extremely low, very low, low, and moderate. And as you can see on this slide, we included some recent developments that does have um, inclusionary housing units within them at various levels of income affordability. Next slide. So when it comes to affordability thresholds, we have a household income distribution which shows very low, low, moderate, and above moderate for both the city of Ventura and the Ventura County. 
So when you think about area median income, you have to think about it as a standing point of where affordability for housing developments are made. So for the county of Ventura, it has an AMI for a household of four at moderate income at $118,550 per year. For low, for a family of four, that would be $90,350 per year. For very low, that is $56,450 per year. And finally, for extremely low, is $33,850 per year. So when you think about affordability, it comes, it comes into play for qualified households that will be paying just about 30% of their income towards their housing costs. So the development of inclusionary housing program, it was a combination between staff and consultants who held stakeholder meetings with affordable and market developers, housing agencies, and, and advocacy groups. We were able to garner support for in-lieu fees and off-site units. We then shared the draft ordinance with these stakeholders, and the ordinance was heard at three planning commission meetings that we'll be discussing next. So on February 9, 2022, was the first time that the planning commission heard about the proposed um, inclusionary housing ordinance program. And then it was brought up again on February 23rd at 2022, where the planning commission asked staff and the consultants to come back with deeper affordability at a 5-2 vote. After some financial analysis was done over the summer, it was once again brought back to the Planning Commission on December 14, 2022, where the Planning Commission, after much robust deliberations and discussions, recommended at a 6-0 vote to adjust affordability for rental units as follows. It will be 10% very 10% um, low income in all rental projects, as well as 5% very low income. They, will want the, they wanted the adjustment to the inflow fees accordingly. They wanted to adjust the covenants to perpetuity for rental units. And, and keep in mind that for for sale units, they wanted to keep it as it was proposed um, by the financial analysis at 10% moderate. Um, I would like to note that there is a small discrepancy within the staff report and the written ordinance that said it should be 15% moderate, when in actuality it should be 10% moderate in for sale projects. So the differences between our current inclusionary housing program and our proposed housing program are seen here. So our current um, housing, inclusionary housing program does have some challenges where it comes to the project threshold. So for instance, in situations where there's 59 units or less, it will require one to seven units depending on the final number proposed in that development. However, for projects with 60 units or more, it will require 15% of affordability. The rental threshold, which is not available throughout the city and solely available in the redevelopment area, requires 15% affordability. And the housing, provi housing provider is able to do a mix of developments between very low, low, as well as moderate income. And for all site alternatives, there are none available with the current inclusionary housing program. So for our proposed inclusionary housing program, it will be a citywide single inclusionary housing program where any development with seven units or more will require in for sale projects 10% moderate income level. And for a rental threshold, it will be 15% as indicated, 10% at low income and 5% at very low income. And in lieu fees as alternatives, as well as property dedication and offsite construction. So the affordability thresholds and these income level requirements was done by Kathy Head of KMA, who is now gonna do more information regarding the affordability thresholds as well as the financial analysis. Take it over, Kathy. Um, good evening, Mayor and City Council members. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask is, could you just go to slide five? 
I don't want to repeat what you just said. So it's slight side by of my presentation, sorry. There you go. Thanks. Um, so Leona just gave a very good summary of where we've been and, and where we've arrived at. And my name's Kathy Head. I'm president of Kaiser Marston and I manage the firm's affordable housing practice. Um, this is one of 35 inclusionary housing programs I've worked on helping to set up or to revise. So I just want to give you a little bit of background on that. Um, the other thing that I think is very important for you all to understand is the legal standards and the statutory standards for inclusionary housing programs. Um, the legal standard through a variety of court cases have established that the requirements cannot be confiscatory and they cannot deprive an owner of a fair return on their investment in their property. So what you're faced with as a, as a city who has obviously a large unmet need for affordable housing is you want to get housing developed and you want to have developers who are interested in developing in your community, but you also want to fulfill this need for uh, affordable housing to the extent that you can with this particular program in addition to other programs that, that you have to offer in the city. So as a practical matter, these two factors need to be balanced against each other because if you establish too stringent a requirement, then you'll inadvertently create a constraint to housing development which means fewer units will be developed. And so by definition, fewer affordable units will be developed. So the big part of the Kaiser Marston analyses for these inclusionary housing programs is to try and find that balance. And as part of that, um, I will acknowledge that we take a conservative viewpoint on these programs as they're set up because we're very, very concerned about the standards that have been set by the statutes and by the courts, but also we're very concerned about the practical matter of wanting to see a market rate development happen so that affordable housing development can happen with it. So that's what that's where we came in. Um, we started um, a little over a year ago with Justin and Luffy analysis, and then, as Leona mentioned, it was then supplemented by a financial evaluation that was prepared in August of last year. Um, we use that then to recommend the affordable housing standards to be applied. If we could go to the next slide, please. So when we did the financial evaluation in August of 2022, we were asked to test the, the following requirements. And this was a request by the, the Planning Commission that we test moderate income and low income for ownership projects and that we look at five different standards for apartment development, um, that was both a city staff and planning commission request that ranged from a low income requirement or a very low income requirement, and then a mix of very low and low, um, as you can see on the slide. So we did, we analyzed all of those. So if we could go to the next slide, please. So I wanna just go over how we do the financial evaluation. So what the components of our financial evaluation are. So the first step in the financial evaluation is to work with the city staff, work with your housing element, work with development plans and proposals that have come to you for residential projects. And then to use that information to create prototype apartment developments and prototype ownership developments that are analogous to projects that are likely to be built in Ventura. So we do that because every analysis is specific to the community we're working in. And so we wanna get projects, they're not specific projects, so we're not modeling any specific projects that's being done, but they do have the characteristics 
of these projects that we've identified in, in the various sources. So then the next step, and the, so those are the residential prototypes. The next step is to then prepare pro forma analyses for these residential prototypes that we've created. And the very first step in that is that we create a 100% market rate project to use as our base, because that varies from community to community in terms of what level profit a developer will get, what level land costs are in that community, and then what the construction costs are. But it's very important because the whole financial valuation's purpose is to understand the incremental difference created by the requirement to be imposed. So we don't set an arbitrary return on the market rate project. We solve in the pro forma analysis for what return would be estimated to be generated with a 100% market rate project. Based on that and based on the results of that, we then do an incremental analysis by adding affordable housing units into the analysis to determine where that balance is reached, where we believe that the impacts are not so stringent that they'll, they'll stop or constrain development, but that they provide as many affordable units as we think can be supported by the economic conditions. And then we, the whole idea of this analysis is to create a program that is not confiscatory and that does not deprive a property owner of a fair and reasonable return on their investment with a, with the third caveat of the department of housing and community development at the state has an interest in making sure that your requirements aren't a constraint to housing next slide please and then the one after that so our ownership analysis we did three different prototypes we did a detached single-family home prototype, a townhome prototype, and a stacked flat condominium in the, in the specific plan area. And we looked at those developments, and I'll just briefly go over their characteristics just so you can get a sense of what we were looking at. So in the detached single-family home prototype, the average size of the units was about 2,900 square feet. And the total development costs, including land, for the project was estimated at about $1.13 million. And then the weighted average sales price of those units was estimated at $1.33 million. And based on that pro forma analysis of that prototype and assuming a 100% market rate project, the return was a little over 11%. The profit was a little over 11%. When we move on to the townhome project, which is at 15 units the acre, as you can see, then the unit sizes are dramatically smaller. So they're at about 1,800 square feet on a, on a weighted average basis. Commensurately, then the sales market rate, achievable market rate sales prices were estimated at $709,000. And this was based, and this is in the report, this was based on market surveys we did in the community of, of home sales, um, both new and resale sales, to come up with, with the estimates that we have in our pro formas. Um, so the weighted average um, sales price, again, for the market rate units was $865,000 approximately. And the return on that project at, at a, again, 100% market rate project, it was 15.3%. Then we move to the stacked flat condos. The stacked flat condos are at 50 units the acre with an average unit size of a little over 1,100 square feet. Yeah, total development costs are $532,000 per unit. 
the weighted average sales price is 606,000 approximately, and it generated a return of 7.7%. You'll see when I talk about the apartment analysis, I'm actually using the same prototype because it could be either apartments or condominiums, and it actually does work better as an apartment project, but we wanted to have a mix of product types in the, in the financial evaluation. Next slide, please. So the next slide shows you what the affordable sales prices are at both moderate and low income for the units based on the number of bedrooms in the unit, which is the way the affordable sales prices are calculated. So in the case of the moderate income units, they're calculated against 110% of the area median income for a household size that's equal to the number of bedrooms in the unit plus one. That's not an occupancy cap or a floor. It's simply a benchmark that is established by California Health and Safety Code, Section 50052.5, that to give you a way to set a price by, bed, by number of bedrooms in the unit, so not every unit selling at a different price. So every three-bedroom unit at a moderate income would sell at the same price, irrespective of the household size who occupies that unit. So that's a very important distinction. The other distinction is it's calculated at 110% of area median income, but a household earning up to 120% of area median or down to 80% of area median income could live in that house if, if they could qualify to, to buy it. Um, my, on the low income, it's a very similar calculation, except for, in that case, it's calculated at 70% of area median income. Household could earn up to 80% and as little as 50% but it, it's calculated at 70%. And in the case of low income, 30% of income is set aside or allocated to housing costs, whereas in the moderate income example, 35% of income is, is, is allocated to affordable housing costs. And that's why you see the significant differences on the table between low and moderate income. And that's one of the reasons that, if for, well, it is the reason, that the affordability gap associated with moderate income units is dramatically less than the affordability gap associated with low income units. So you can just, just taking a couple examples from the table, if you see the, for example, the townhome, the three bedroom moderate income price is 379,600. Comparatively, the low income price is 89,300. And we'll come back and we'll look at the affordability gaps from the market rate prices we saw on an earlier slide. But this gives you a sense of, of the, the differential and just the basic affordable prices at, in both income categories. So the highest price, the highest affordable price is the five bedroom detached single family home at $431,500. Next slide, please. So, when we did the pro forma analyses, as I mentioned before, we were looking at an incremental analysis because clearly if an affordability requirement is imposed on a project, the developer profit will be reduced by definition because the developer is already going to charge as much for the market rate units as the market will bear. And so if you put a, a limit on the price that can be paid for some of the units, then by definition, the profit will be less. But again, the courts and the legislature have said that's okay. It's okay to have a financial impact on a project 
It just can't be confiscatory and it can't deprive a property owner of a fair and reasonable return on their land. The problem is neither the courts nor the legislature has told you what that means. And so we don't, it would be great if they just had a definition that, that you could use. But instead, what we've done just over time, and as I said, I've been doing these for 30 years now, is over time the analysis has evolved and we look at a couple of different variables to just test out what those impacts are. And then again, because they're inclusionary housing programs all over the state, and because we've done a lot of them, is we look at the, the results from other analyses and we look at, at the success rate of, of other programs when we, when we do this analysis. So if you look at the pro forma analysis results for the ownership housing units, you can see that the impacts in both cases, so the, so the first thing we look at is what is the developer profit as a percentage of cost? And you compare that then to what it was at a market rate project. Or you look at and you say, okay, well, we know there's gonna be an impact off the bat of having this requirement, but over time, we're assuming that market rate prices will increase. I mean, they go up and they go down, but you know, over time, real estate in California, ultimately it goes more up than down. And so we say, well, how long would it take to mitigate these impacts? And that's what this line item about market price increase required to offset the requirement is. And we like to try and keep that requirement right around 5%. We don't like it to be much higher than 5%. Um, so as you can see, in e each of the cases, these impacts are effectively the same. So the moderate income impacts are effectively the same as the low income impacts, but it's the percentage of supportable units that changes because there's more impact by the lower prices. And so for the moderate income analysis, the detached single family home project supported a 9% moderate income requirement or a 6% low income requirement. That's an or. Or it could, for the townhomes and the stacked flats, it was a 10% moderate income requirement or a 6% low income requirement. Next slide, please. So then we looked at um, one of the options that's being considered in, in addition to the, the base foundational option of producing the unit is what would the in lieu fee be that somebody might be allowed to pay or a developer might be allowed to pay based on these requirements. But when we did this analysis, it was also then a notion and this is a policy decision that given the preference for on-site production or production of the affordable units, we wanted the in lieu fee to be higher than it would be to produce the units on, on site. And that's okay because it's an option. If it was a requirement, it wouldn't be okay. It would have to mesh with the affordability requirement. But because they could always produce on site, you have the flexibility to set your in Luffy at a higher percentage. You don't have to, you could set it right at the, at the affordability gap. But in this instance, we set it at assuming a 15% requirement and a 20% requirement, just so you, you'd have a sense of what that fee would be if, if that was charged on an ownership project. I have a strong preference for it to be charged per square foot of, of saleable area. And that's because if you have it set per unit in the project, then projects that have large units, large square footage units, pay disproportionately less of an in lieu fee than projects with small square footage units. 
And so it's more equitable, in my opinion, to set it based on the square foot of saleable area in order to, to resolve that issue. And so I'm just going to focus on that, that line of the, the chart. And so you can see if the requirement is set at the 15% requirement, then the in lieu fee ranges from $29.80 per square foot in, in the townhome prototype to $46.40 in the detached single family home. It'd be my recommendation, and this is after you come to a conclusions about how you want to proceed with inclusionary, but it would be my recommendation that you take the average of those fees and you don't vary the per square foot fee um, across sub areas. But again, you could if you want. If you increase that to 20%, a 20% requirement for the in lieu fee, then the fee goes up to $44.80 to $66.30 per square foot of saleable area. Next slide, please. Next slide. So then we did exactly the same thing with the apartment um, analyses. We, we built three apartment prototypes and then we analyzed, we did pro forma analyses and we did the same incremental analysis of a 100% market rate project versus a project that had income restrictions imposed. And so we varied this, not so much based on product type, um, although we did to some extent, but also by area in, in the community. So the coastal area has higher rents being charged for the units and higher land values. And then we did an inland area prototype because there has been some significant apartment development in the inland area. And then, as I mentioned before, the downtown specific plan prototype is exactly the same as the prototype from the, from the ownership scenario. So if we start with the coastal area, it had a density of 20 units per acre and an average unit size of 890 square feet per unit. The total development costs are $584,000 per unit and the weighted average rent per unit is $4,216. So as you can see, that rent is higher than the rent in, in the other two areas that we looked at. When you look at the inland area, we used a 40 unit per acre density and those units are bigger at a little over a thousand square feet. Their costs are lower than the coastal area costs. That's largely attributable to land costs. And then the weighted average rent per unit is 32.94. And then the downtown specific plan, very similar again to what we looked at in the ownership project. And those units, the, the rent is 36.44. You can see on the bottom of the chart, the stabilized return on investment for those three different prototypes are, are very similar. So it is this balance between the rent achieved versus the cost to build and, and buy land. Next slide, please. So when we did the affordable rents for this, the financial evaluation, what we did for low income is HCD, the housing count, Community Development Department for the state, when AB 1505 was passed by the legislature, which allowed cities once again to do rental inclusionary, it, it was the what was called the Palmer fix. So in 2009, there was a case in Los Angeles where um, Jeff Palmer um, sued the city of LA for saying apartment rentals violated Costa Hawkins rent control as a rent control vehicle, and he won. 
And so until they passed AB 1505, you couldn't establish a new rental inclusionary policy in a city. Um, the legislature took care of that with AB 1505. And what HCD said, and what was actually part of the government code was an example that said, for example, a 15% low income requirement. So there was a lot of discussion and confusion around the state about whether that was just an example or whether it was a recommendation or whether it was a limit. And HCD then subsequently wrote a technical memorandum where they said they had a strong preference that that be the most stringent of the requirements um, imposed on, on apartment development. And that if you wanted to propose a, a more stringent requirement that, then you really should have a financial evaluation to support that more stringent requirement. What HCD's role in this is really effectively limited to what they do with your housing element. So they, if they deem your inclusionary program a constraint to housing, they can challenge your housing element. If your housing element has been approved, then they can still come back to you and make you demonstrate that it's not creating a constraint to housing. And I've actually been involved in a couple cities where HCD did come to the city and said, can you prove up that your requirements aren't, aren't confiscatory? And so we had to demonstrate that development was occurring and that it, it hadn't been overly constrained by the requirement. So HCD doesn't have a specific role outside of, of the housing element, but they can, they can show up on your doorstep. So it's just something you wanna keep in mind. Um, so what we did for low income is we used that 80%. We used that as the measure of low income. If you're using the California Health and Safety Code, the old redevelopment rents, or the current density bonus rents, those rents, instead of being calculated at 80% of AMI, would be calculated at 60% of AMI. And so that creates a difference. And so what we're trying to do is create a rent structure that doesn't create as strong an impact as it would at, at a lower rate. And, and also to create a distinction between low income and very low income, because the way section 50053 works, very low income is calculated at 50% of AMI, low income is calculated at 60% of AMI. So there's not much of a difference. And we'll get to that when we're talking to den about density bonus. Um, so the, the low income as, as used in the financial valuation the one bedroom units are $1,798 per month, going up to the three bedroom units at $2,230 per month. If you very low income rents, and that's at 50% of AMI, you'll see that they range from 1106 to 1356. So there's a significant difference, and that's actually intentional. It's intentional to create that kind of, kind of a difference. Um, next slide, please. So we ran the pro forma again, we looked at the incremental impact on developer return. And again, using projects, these are all base zoning projects. So none of these projects in the prototypes are density bonus projects. And so this is just what you could do without a density bonus. And so the, in the coastal area, the supportable inclusionary percentage was 9%. And in the other two areas, it was 12% and 11%. And the reason for the difference is, again, that difference in market rate rents versus affordable rents. So the difference in rents for in the coastal area is significantly higher than the 
difference in rents for the other two areas. And that's why you, why you come up with that difference. If you go to the very low income standard, it ranges between seven and 8%. So if you just took this analysis, just straight off the financial evaluation and you didn't consider state density bonus, then, then it, in my professional opinion, your um, inclusionary requirement should not exceed these levels. Going to the next slide, please. Which brings us to density bonus. And so the state over the last 20 years has been making density bonus easier to use and more providing more benefits. And they amend it almost every year to make it easier to use and to provide more benefits. And so when, when a community has an inclusionary housing program, it's very likely that they will also see more um, inclusionary, <laughs> just got a note that I should go faster. Um, you'll see more inclusionary, um, you'll see more density bonus projects. So if you have a density bonus project, then you can't pay it in Luffy, you have to produce the units. So we ran a density bonus scenarios for each of the projects. And in those cases for the prototype projects, it could support a 15% very low income requirement in return for, for getting the density bonus benefits, be it in the concessions or in the actual density bonus increase. So moving on. In Luffy, I'll just do it briefly. I'm almost done. The in Luffy, based on that affordability gap for a 15% low income standard, which is the in the end of the day what we ended up recommending, which is sort of a combination of the financial evaluation plus the, the density bonus analysis is a fee ranging from $20.30 a foot to $48.90. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, so when we made our recommendations, one more slide, please, then we suggested a 10% moderate income requirement for ownership units and a 15% low income requirement for apartment development. Um, also then, these are criteria that you're gonna wanna think about is you can't isolate the units, they have to be spread around the project and they have, your residents have to have equal access to everything. We recommended that the covenant period remain for at least 55 years or as long as the project is maintained as a residential use. Um, so that's what we recommended. So but it was at least 55 years. Next slide. So the rationale behind our requirements were, we don't have guidance from the courts on what confiscatory means or developing a property owner of a fair and reasonable return. We like to use a, a conservative approach to figuring out these requirements because we really don't want there to be problems with either developers or with the government, the state government, coming and telling you you're creating a constraint to housing. Um, the recommended amounts were based on our performa analysis, based on our experience in this realm, and on AB 1505 which strongly recommended the no more stringent than 15% at low income. You can use a stricter standard when you're allowing an option like an offsite production and the state density bonus goes a long way towards mitigating the impacts. One more slide. So this is the important one. Is the planning commission after a good deal of discussion, a good deal of public comment, asked if, if I thought it would be reasonable for them to use a 10% moderate, recommend a 10% moderate income requirement and, and, and um, plus a 5% very low income requirement rather than the 15% low income. 
And so then I prepared a supplemental analysis to look at that and came to the conclusion, I mean, it wouldn't have been, it's not what my financial evaluation results were, but if you assume that developers can efficiently use the state density bonus, then I believe that, that you could stay within the, the letters of the, of the law and not create a constraint to housing. Um, and that's it, I'm done. Okay, so to wrap up, so these are staff recommendations. So it's the first to conduct a public hearing, determine that the inclusionary housing program ordinance is exempt from CEQA, introduce and approve the first reading of the ordinance with a modification to the for sale requirement to 10% versus 15%, set the second reading and adoption of this ordinance at a city council meeting scheduled for the next few weeks, and then authorize the finance department to adjust revenue and expenditure appropriation as necessary to account for the income received from the in lieu fees. Thank you. Thank you very much. Council comments. Councilmember Halter. Great. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, and thank you, Seth. Uh, excellent presentation. A lot of lot of good good knowledge. So I really appreciate that. Um, first, though, is uh, since this is really a snapshot in time of how much things cost to build, did we take into consideration um, current processes and holding costs as part of the cost to build? Kathy, you want to chime in on that? Yes, we did. So when we looked at this, we, we looked at, at the time, what the economics were, but we also took into account the sort of rampant inflation that we're dealing in in, in 2022. I can make my video come back. Um, and so we, we tried to, to mitigate that to some extent, but because folks are developing now, and this is a snapshot, so the other thing I would say is, given the times we're in, it would be good to look at this again in, in a couple years. Yeah. And that, for example, we did Claremont's in 2007, right before the global recession. And then, so we, we, the city then looked at it again a couple years later when they found the development had just stopped. Now, it wasn't because of inclusionary, it stopped because of the global recession, but they wanted to create a program that worked. So this is the best snapshot of, of where we sit today. Mm -hmm. But again, things can change over time and it, it is worth reevaluating over time. Okay, and thank you for that, Kathy. Uh, the other thing is uh, for sale. Um, in order to calculate, make these calculations, you assumed a certain percent of interest. What would that be? Did you choose an interest rate? Yeah, so what I did, so again, recognizing that we went from last February being at 3%, 3.3% interest, to now where we're at 7% interest. You didn't, I didn't want to take the low end or the high end of that. So what I did, and what I've been doing in my analyses in this last year, you know, in other communities as well, is I've taken a 12-month average of the, the Freddie Mac interest rates for 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. And so I've just taken that rolling 12-month average, and I've been applying that plus a margin, so plus a, a, like a, like a, a bonus on top of that to just make it more conservative. Great, thank you for that. And my final question is a little bit more complex for staff, and that's about, um, I know somewhere in the housing element, we talk about our current housing stock and how much of that is low, very low, moderate, and uh, market rate. Um, but most importantly, uh, that's always a very interesting number, but the most importantly for tonight for me is uh, approximately how many units 
are currently in a program that provides very low, low or moderate income housing? And how is that supervisor overseeing to make sure that they stay affordable over um, the, the covenant time period? Thank you, Councilmember Halter. Um, I don't have the exact number of inclusionary units that are being managed right now in the city um, and their breakdown of each affordability. Uh, happy to provide that to you um, in a breakdown. There is some discussion about it in the housing element as, an, as the analysis was done in there. Um, However, your second question about how many or how these are managed is the city has a contract with the Housing Authority of San Buenaventura. They are contracted with us to manage our inclusionary housing units. So um, once a contract is developed by the city and entered into for, with the developer for the restriction of those units, the Housing Authority takes over, manages those, and does yearly inspections and monitors the inventory and covenant period. Great, thank you very much. Other questions? Public comments, please, Mr. City Clerk. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have 26 speakers on this item. Our first speaker is uh, Mr. Lang Martinez. Lang, you have been seated time by Adam Vega. You have six minutes. Hello. Six minutes. Mayor Pro Term, uh, Council Members. My name is Lang Martinez. I'm uh, a homeless advocate. I'm also a business owner in, uh, in Oxnard. Um, but I came up and she was talking about her qualifications. Uh, I wrote two articles. I'm, uh, I have a, it's called The Shed, so bear with me. I wrote two articles. It's the first time of anybody of my t where I came from has written any articles of such. The one article that first went out was in the BC Reporter. It called about transparency resources. I'm sure that you read that. That article was sent to quite a few people in Ventura County and other newspapers have, rest have reached out, and, uh, including BNA Lopez's office, and uh, I can't get a comment. I'll be working with the LA Times, and we'll be doing a follow-up. Another article went out, um, I apologize, another article went out, um, where'd it go out <laughs> Another article went out, I'm sorry, it just went out in, uh, I'm sorry, in Montecito. And that article was called Chronic Vagrancy Versus Homelessness and the Millions of Dollars That Have Been Spent. The lady over here was talking about affordable housing and incomes. You know, one of the biggest things about me writing these two articles is using the definition and saying the word vagrant. I'll tell you what really upsets me. What really upsets me was individuals like you and you, and you want to call homeless people in encampments, and you want to put them all together and say that they're unhoused is ridiculous, because you're respecting those that are unhoused because of circumstances such as rents, et cetera, so forth, losing their jobs. So let me tell you a little bit about me. My name's Leg Martinez. I'm a recovering addict, alcoholic, monster survivor of sexual abuse and rape. I'm also recovering from vagrancy. 
See, I was homeless. I spent 15 years in prison. I had four prison numbers, and I cost you people millions of dollars. And let's not talk about my thievery in your stores. Let's not talk about my highway, my highway pursuits. Let's not talk about SWAT teams, gasoline for the helicopters chasing me. You can read all about the LA Times. I am also the first individual to write an apology that went in the Locker Center Weekly. I am, I am in the media, and I am in Ventura County, I am the first individual to come out of my situation to make a noise in regards to my advocacy and actually make a difference. See, I'm a law-abiding citizen today. So let's go back to that. When the gentleman kicked the dog on Ormond, I was called by the authorities because you want to talk about unhoused individuals. Say, I was a criminal, I was a vagrant, and I identified that. So I was called because other people didn't want to go out on Ormond, and I was contacted by Friends of Ormond Beach, and I went out there on my own with two other individuals, and I brought that to the attention of all of you. Because that guy kicked the dog and he attacked somebody, and I was part of the removal of those encampments. See, you talk about people that had affordable housing. You just gave people hotel rooms at a cost of $102.50 a day. Wraparound services, food, etc., is approximately $5,000 per person per vagrant. 70% of those people in Project Roof Team, which is a failure, were vagrants, criminals, people that didn't care, people with no accountability, and you people appeased them. See, I can talk like this because I was one of them. What about the people that are suffering? See, there's a lady that's sitting on your thing and want to talk to me about unhoused. Unhoused? Let's talk about unhoused. See, when you talk about a comprehensive solution of housing first, you're not talking about Lang Martinez in the way that I used to be. You're talking of different groups. There's two identified groups. I was a vagrant. And then you have the unhoused. See, unhoused, being unhoused because of vagrancy is because they find it advantageous to be unhoused. We need to get our definitions right before people start getting their feelings hurt when Lang Martinez says vagrancy or vagrant. It's a bad word, Lang. No, it's not. It is what it is. I was one of them I could identify. I was a multimillionaire three times. I was a Fortune 500 company in 2006, Latino. My family comes from the La Pinion newspaper. That's my grandfather. You can read that in the, in the in, in Fillmore Gazette where it says, Ventura County homeless advocate seeks redemption. It tells you who I am. But guess not who I was. See? See, today, tomorrow, we have a situation that we spend all these money appeasing these people, and tomorrow they're on the streets. Let's do, I'm running out of time. Let's talk about La Quinta, La Quinta Hotel. You guys know who purchased it, don't you? The purchase went through in last August. By the way, I get calls from Washington because of what I do. I know who purchased it, and you do. Right. Hang on. See, I don't think that we're being totally uh, transparent. So I apologize. I've been a little sick and I've been a little. I gave you an article, Mayor. I'd like to be able to reach out to you and see if I can get a comment from any of you in regards to the articles that I've read, that I've written. I apologize tonight. I've been a little under the weather. Thank you for letting me share.
Our next speaker is John Jones. John will be followed by Judy Alexander. Good evening, everyone. As a member of the VSFTS and Homes for All, I would like to express my thoughts on the proposed revised inclusionary housing program ordinance. I strongly support the recommendation put forward by the VSFTF and the Homes for All. That would include the percentage of the affordable housing being for rental, 15% uh, very low income, and for sale, 15% low income or 20% moderate income. Adequate access to affordable housing is important for the entire community, not only those in need of such housing. Addressing affordable housing is a complex issue and an inclusionary housing program ordinance is one of the tools available. It's not the only tool in the toolbox, but it's the one on tonight's agenda. Looking up the definition of inclusionary, we see designated or intended to provide equal access to opportunities or resources for people who might otherwise be excluded or marginalized. From the website commonbound.org, some notes on the economic benefits of affordable housing. More affordable housing creates more job opportunities. Of course, there are many long-term opportunities that come from affordable housing in local communities. The healthier economy is, the more jobs it will need. One of the benefits of affordable housing is that it encourages improved mobility that creates more jobs in our cities. Though some of these jobs are more immediate than others, the long-term benefits of affordable housing are profound and can lead to meaningful changes in society. I look forward to our city council moving forward with steps that can result in meaningful changes in our community. Thank you. Our next speaker is Judy Alexander, followed by Kyler Carlson, who will be ceding his time to Claudia Armand. Good evening, Mayor Schroeder and all the council members. I am currently chair of the Ventura Social Service Task Force and an active member of Homes for All and a couple other housing advocacy groups. And I'm really grateful that an inclusionary housing ordinance is now on the table after many years. Thank you. Housing is needed. Workforce housing is essential at all levels. We need young families, new employees and low-wage employees to be able to live in Ventura, to be able to live where they work. The biblical book of Isaiah tells us that those who build houses should be able to inhabit them. It tells us that those who plant our vineyards ought to be able to eat the fruit of that vineyard and live where they work. I pray that that would be true for the city of Ventura. I want to live in a community of inclusion and diversity of income, ethnicity, work, and lifestyles. I want our businesses and schools to thrive. I want for teachers, nurses, first responders, city employees, grocery clerks, retail workers to be able to live in Ventura. We need to prevent homelessness. One way is having affordable housing so that our low-wage workers are not paying, as they are now, 50 to 60 percent, not 30 percent, for rent. Rents are increasing. People's incomes are not. For this to happen, we must have affordable housing. 
this task force joins Homes for All in asking that we do all we can to have housing available for all. The state did not and does not require a study or a consultant to approve our request. Rental properties, we recommend, are 15% very low in perpetuity. For sale properties, to have 15% low income and 20% moderate income for a minimum of 55 years. We want to maintain what the city has had and not lower that threshold. We support the recommended in-lieu fees that will encourage the development of affordable housing on site or be available to low-income developers as needed. We support the threshold of seven units for implementation. Thank you that you'll join me in wanting a thriving city. Our next speaker is Claudia Armand. Claudia, you'll have six minutes. Claudia will be followed by Pete Freeman. Um, good evening, I'm Claudia Armand. I'm a longtime Ventura resident, a member of Homes for All, and I served on the city's Inclusionary Housing Blue Ribbon Committee. In 2017, the state passed AB 1505, giving cities the authority to create inclusionary housing ordinances for rental projects. The law allows cities to require up to 15% low and very low income rentals without triggering an economic study. Let me repeat that. You are indeed authorized to create the deep levels of affordability that Homes for All is requesting tonight. The state legislature gave you that power and I hope you will use it. The recommendation being put forward um, by the consultant tonight would only allocate 5% to very low income households, 10% to low. Who will the majority of these units help? Households of three making up to 81,000. Households of four making up to 90,000, et cetera. You have the data in the staff report. When we think of affordable housing, the community imagines minimum wage earners, those experiencing homelessness, those who are working in retail and hospitality, farm workers. This ordinance, as proposed currently, will miss that mark. A few comments on the for sale portion of the ordinance. The city's current ordinance for for sale properties was passed in 2006. For the past 17 years, it's required projects of 60 or more units to provide 15% of the units for purchase by low-income households or 20% to moderate-income households. So smaller projects have a lower requirement. In the past 17 years, projects like the Cannery on Ventura Avenue, Enclave on the East End, and most recently, Haley Point on Channel Drive have included for sale inclusionary units. For example, when Enclave was built on North Bank in 2017, a two-bedroom inclusionary unit sold for 270,000, prices we haven't seen in this town in decades. That type of opportunity is a game changer for residents who want to establish roots here. The consultant's report concludes that developers cannot get their projects to pencil out with percentages of that nature. You have real-world data to prove otherwise. You have evidence in the many new developments that have been built throughout this town 
that your long-standing policy has not constrained development. The proposed ordinance for for sale projects would shut the door altogether to low-income homebuyers. Do you really want to weaken the policy when the housing crisis is more extreme than when the policy was first passed 17 years ago? If you reduce the percentage of for sale inclusionary units required, the city will collect lower in lieu fees if the developer opts not to build the units. And I, and I want to uh, remind you um, that with the density bonus laws um, that have come about recently, this further helps developers to make their projects profitable. The consultant is advocating a conservative approach, as she said multiple times. We have an affordable housing crisis that requires boldness. We are asking you to make a bold choice tonight in going beyond what the consultant has suggested and instead listen to your community here tonight and support the Homes for All recommendation. Thank you. Our next speaker is Matt Bellow, and Matt has been ceded time by Pete Freeman. Matt, you'll have six minutes. Right. Um, thank you, Council, and welcome to the new members. I'm already really enjoying your comments. So, um, as you know, inclusionary housing is just one of the many tools we have to address our housing challenges, but it's a tool that we have uh, to take very seriously. Over time, this process can assure affordable housing where thousands of interns or a weaker inclusionary housing ordinance can potentially exclude these same people. I believe this city has the opportunity, opportunity to develop a much stronger ordinance similar to the successful ordinances of Goleta and Agora Hills that have survived the H HCD scrutiny. To put the current situation in context, according to HCD statistics since 2018, 767 above moderate rate units have been built in Ventura. Uh, yet also since 2018, the average rent for a two bedroom apartment during that same period went from $2,000 a month to $2,700 a month. Essentially, we are building at a breakneck speed, but we are not seeing the promised relief in housing prices or the trickle down vacancies that so many people keep saying is coming. <coughs> are coming, excuse me. The fact that the building, the fact is building is not a bad thing, I myself am pro-development for tasteful-looking places that complement our unique history and character and coastal culture, yet unregulated free market housing will not solve the housing crisis in Ventura or anywhere in the U.S. Even the United Nations is outlining how our over-financialization of the housing market is creating dire circumstances, and it needs to be regulated. As um, the consultant mentioned, Jeffrey Palmer is you know, a quintessential developer from Los Angeles that su successfully sued to overturn our inclusionary housing, and it took our state legislature uh, nearly nine, nine years to repair that, but I've been watching meetings since 2017 waiting for this, and I'm happy it's here, but really I feel that our consultant has been unprepared in many ways. More on that in a moment. Um, fortunately, regarding um, inclusionary housing, we are ge geographically close to two cities that are serious about meeting the arena goals uh, for lower income categories and manifesting them in real policy. Namely, Goleta, with 20% requirements with four levels, which has survived, survived HCD scrutiny, and Agora Hills, 15% requirements in three income categories, have um, 
are the strongest IHOs in the area. When asked about these particular IHOs, our consultant, after she said she had researched the region and surrounding counties, said she was not aware of these ordinances. Luckily, our planning commission was, not, was disappointed enough uh, in her analysis to send her back to complete a more thorough report. Unfortunately, her next report still omitted Goleta and Agora Hills. She tried to cover this when she, asked, when she was asked by a uh, planning commissioner uh, by saying that some of the research, um, that she had done some research, and I'm sorry, but she misinformed the planning commission that the cities were struggling to attract investment. Um, in fact, I've shared with you uh, in a public letter, both of these small cities being absolutely beautiful places, almost as beautiful as our own town, Ventura, have respectively um, over 100 units of multifamily developments that are eligible for local IHOs, either approved or being approved, and have, and have collected uh, $2 million in in lieu fees, collectively. I've shared with you the documentation to demonstrate that she misspoke to the Planning Commission and that their decision was based on misinformation about the successes of um, or the lack of success of, of local IHOs. Additionally, she made comments on the recently approved Haley Point uh, project that made it sound like the developers were only able to afford 20% moderate inclusionary housing because this was a density bonus project. My understanding is that a stronger inclusionary housing ordinance does not prevent developers from receiving additional density bonuses. This is exactly what the Haley, Haley Point developers did. They used their existing for sale IHO, which is much stronger than the proposed one, to choose 20% inclusionary housing for moderate earners, an option that was just neglected in the staff report. And they earned some modest setback and parking benefits. I deeply doubt that these modest concessions equaled the uh, price differences that equated to half the cost of the inclusionary housing obligations, yet we don't know because she excluded analysis of the project in her financial findings and the and claims that the developers can only afford 10% moderate inclusionary housing for in sale, uh, for for sale developments. The fact that the decision to hire this consultant and treat her like an infallible authority, uh, the decision to uh, hire this consultant and treat her like an infallible authority was a dubious one. This area of consultancy is, uh, and pro forma analysis is too abstract and far more speculative than many of the services we hire as a city and treat and uh, treat this, um, and it's inappropriate to treat this as an exact science. There are so many variables uh, that affect the cost of development, um, such as interest rates, labor shortages, weather, energy and material costs, etc. The only thing we can truly rely on is what we see moving forward uh, in um, areas that are similar to us. Hence, we should look at the municipalities and emulate them. They are taking the renegals seriously and recognize the developers uh, that developers will always come. Uh, to beautiful places and make, and they, they've made courageous policy decisions. Uh, this is what you're tasked to do with, and so respectfully, I hope you make the right decision. I, I'm not part of Homes for All, but I, I definitely support their, their proposal. And lastly, um, I, I just want to make sure that um, the perpetual um, covenant for, for rental properties is addressed as well. That was recommended by the Planning Commission. and. I may have missed it, but it, it seemed like that may have not been covered in the presentation. So I hope council members could uh, address that as well. So uh, thank, you, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Our next speaker is Carl Morehouse. Carl will be followed by Helen Aloyan. Good evening, Mayor and Council. And it's ironic to be on this side and you're all up there because we've had this conversation in reverse. I'm here tonight in my capacity as a member of the Vulnerable Population Housing Advocacy Network 
and a member of the Ventura House Farm Workers Committee. Um, again, it's, it's kind of unusual that we're talking about this topic when I was sitting up there quite some time ago and we've never gotten there. Part of it was because the previous councils had to await the Palmer decision and the San Jose decision. As you all know, on our watch, redevelopment was taken away. I don't have any arguments particularly with the methodology that your Kaiser Marston uh, consultant used. I think there's a lot of reasonableness to that, but uh, by the same token as she even indicated and has been iterated up here, it's a rather conservative approach. I have sat through all the meetings by the Social Services Task Force and Homes for All, and I think that their conclusions and their numbers are just as valid, or if not more so, and as your last speaker indicated, is a chance to be bold and you look at the surrounding communities. We have watched this community go through a number of new housing projects that we haven't been able to capture because we haven't got an inclusionary ordinance in place. That's a missed opportunity. I don't think the market, even though I keep watching the news as well, how much it's going to slow down. This is a desirable community, and we will continue to have people seeking entitlements, and we need to find an opportunity to capture for both rental and for sale uh, the opportunity to utilize this. So, I'm urging you to follow the recommendations of the VSSTF and Homes for All uh, and, and adopt and, and not study any further. I think there is no more time for studying. We're going to, again, continue to miss in this even more polarized housing market that was exacerbated by the pandemic opportunities to provide the housing for the kinds of workforce that have been mentioned up here as well. So I strongly urge you to be able to achieve tonight and then the next month what I wasn't able to and the previous councils weren't able to achieve and get the inclusionary uh, ordinance across the finish line. I thank you for your diligence and attention. Our next speaker is Helena Loyan, followed by Miguel Rodriguez. Good evening, honorable mayor and council members. My name is Helena Loyan and I am the current chair of the Westside Community Council. So the Westside Community Council is pleased to support this inclusionary housing ordinance. But on a personal note, I do recognize that there are some aspects that could be strengthened, but overall I believe that you know we're taking a really good step towards uh, meeting our housing goals. I wanna kind of bring it a little bit more high level. I know we talked a lot about uh, the valuations, respecting property owners, developers' rights, and making it work, making it pencil, so to speak. But why I personally support the IHO is because I have a bachelor's degree, I have a master's degree, I have two jobs, but it is still extremely difficult for me to live here with the current market rates. And that's just not fair. You, no one can say that I didn't try, because I, I sure am. And it is, it is hard to make a living out here and only pay 30% of your rent, specifically like in this county. So I would also like to remind council that the purpose of the inclusionary housing ordinance is to be inclusive. So those deeper levels of affordability, the people who are making $15 an hour, you know, these are the people working in the downtown area, working all around our city, and none of us could survive without all these wage workers. I also want to note of the 2,000 people that I met that I met door knocking this past year. Um, the price of housing was a major concern and uh, a lot of these people are you know, people who are single parents with children, um, young professionals who are trying to fly out of the nest. Um, maybe there's some elderly folks who have a fixed income and are feeling the squeeze. 
Um, so this is, a, this is something that impacts all of our community members, regardless if you're a young person or whatnot. And um, I also want to pose this as a potential solution to our aging population, making it a more attractive setting for young families to move into our city. Um, I also think this would make it attractive for prospective businesses coming to Ventura as, um, you know, what business wouldn't want to be located in our city if there's adequate or ample affordable housing for their workers? So we want to you know, think about the wages people are earning here in the city and make sure that our housing policies reflect that accurately. Thank you. Our next speaker is Miguel Rodriguez, followed by Christian Nunez. All right, uh, good evening. My name is Miguel Rodriguez. Uh, I'm a member of Homes for All and also a member of Manos Unidas. I actually went to high school with Matt Bello, who just spoke, uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of uh, you know having been a, a local product. And uh, it's been about 10 years that I learned, well, since I learned about the inclusionary housing issue. Uh, 10 years ago, there was um, a Blue Ribbon Committee that was formed because uh, city staff wanted to chop the inclusionary housing ordinance. And uh, in my previous life, I was a community organizer for cause and uh, we fought really hard to maintain the inclusionary housing ordinance. And so 10 years later, it's kind of a shame that we still have to fight to keep it, no? And uh, it's very promising to know that uh, there's a good proposal, uh, a good resolution on the table that's uh, being supported by the Ventura Social Services Task Force, as well as Homes for All. And, uh, you know, I support moving ahead without any more additional studies. Uh, really putting in, into place uh, stronger in-lieu fees uh, that will actually encourage the development of uh, some of these units, as well as uh, providing uh, some, or stop, some more funding, right, to close the gaps for financing uh, other developments of housing. And uh, also just keeping in mind that uh, as we sit here or as we come to these meetings, there are a lot of homeless children uh, that don't have a, an actual place and they're living on, in motorhomes at our beaches that due to the rains, right, there's farm workers who are losing income and uh, we have to care for everybody in our community. I myself, um, it's really ironic that I stand here before you because uh, as a community organizer, uh, I chose to take that path and uh, when I finally decided that I wanted to live in Ventura long term, I was priced out about five years ago and I had to make my way outside of the community that I grew up in, uh, that I love. Both me and Matt Bello went to Buena High School um, and I went to Anacapa Middle School. And so uh, it's kind of heartbreaking to know that you can engage in a lot of this work and uh, not be able to afford um, to live in a place that you grew up in. So with that, um, on behalf of Manos Unidas, and I uh, just want to commend you all for the work that you do and also uh, just support the inclusionary housing ordinance being proposed to you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Christian Nunez. Christian will be followed by Stephanie Caldwell. Hello, good evening, City Council. My name is Christian Nunez. I am a policy advocate with Cause, a community organization whose mission is to build grassroots power for social, economic, and environmental justice through policy research, community organizing, and advocacy here in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. But today, I come here not just as an advocate, but also as a longtime Ventura resident who has seen the impacts 
of the limited housing stock and drastic rise in rent increases over the recent years. My family is now fortunate enough to have a stable home within the community we have established our lives in, but unfortunately today, I cannot say the same for many of my neighbors, friends, extended family, and even residents who are here today speaking on this issue. I appreciate that the city is working hard to address the current housing crisis here in Ventura, but with the rising cost of rent, many working families are not at, are at the front lines and at risk of displacement from their homes. I'm here to strongly urge alongside Homes for All and VSSTF that the inclusionary housing ordinance include a 15% very low income requirement for rental units and a 15% low income or 20% moderate income requirement for for sale units. There's a dire need for more affordable homes to alleviate the risk many vulnerable populations here uh, in Ventura face. In addition, I am also in, strong, in support of strong in-lieu fees, which would encourage the development of affordable housing on site, or if used, would provide sufficient gap financing for the development of the needed housing. Lastly, the years spent delaying the passage of a strong inclusionary housing ordinance have been years of missed opportunities to create needed affordable housing in the city of Ventura today. Today we're seeing, renters some, today we're seeing something similar to tenant protections. Renters are in crisis, and the longer the city ignores the needs of working class families, in the incoming year alone, rents will be far too high and generations of families can and will be displaced. I am also asking the City Council to not delay tenant protections to 2024 and instead address them in 2023. Our at-risk communities can no longer wait and are asking for immediate action to protect them from permanent displacement or homelessness in Ventura. Thank you for your time. Our next speaker is Stephanie Caldwell, followed by Norma Ramirez. Good evening. My name is Stephanie Caldwell and I serve as the President and CEO of the Ventura Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber represents 700 businesses with more than 25,000 employees here in Ventura. We have long identified the lack of available housing at all levels as the single largest impediment to our economic prosperity, including the lack of affordable housing. I'd like to thank a few of the speakers tonight, John, Judy, and Helen, um, as well as others who talked about the need for affordable housing in order to attract high-paying jobs, and jobs in general uh, to our community. But tonight you have before you an inclusionary housing policy, as we've all said, years in the making. We don't need to debate the need for affordable housing. I think we all agree. Um, nor um, do we really need to you know, talk about um, affordability, because we all know that that is a situation that um, we are experiencing. This. The lack of affordability um, and lack of availability in our community creates a competitive disadvantage for our businesses, our families, and our community as a whole. The Chamber supports the staff recommendation proposed this evening. We do have just one comment. To make any program in perpetuity requires a confidence in the knowledge of our world that I just don't know exists. There are simply too many variables. Without the ability to see into the future, we simply do not know what is in store. This also puts Ventura at a competitive disadvantage. With the state density bonus setting a covenant at 55 years and the city of Oxnard, our nearest neighbor, setting the covenant at 20 years, we will once again be at a competitive disadvantage. Why not match the state at 55 years? Additionally, outside of the inclusionary policy, I think we as a city should also be working to advocate diligently at the state level for the next iteration of redevelopment funding. Redevelopment 2.0, if you will, so that dedicated funds are made available for communities to build affordable housing. 
We are not in this alone. It is a challenge statewide. We should not be tasked with solving this problem on our own either. But let's do our part and adopt and implement an inclusionary housing policy. Thank you. Our next speaker is Norma Ramirez. Norma has requested Spanish interpretation services. And after Norma will be Meyer Ling via Royal. Buenas noches, estimados miembros del Consejo. Mi nombre es Norma Ramírez. Soy líder comunitaria en causa. Good evening, members of the Council. I'm Norma Ramírez. I am a community leader with CAUSE. Nuestro intérprete está interpretando al español para los que tienen aparatos. I have lived here in Ventura 34 years. And I'm here to talk about the housing crisis and how it has affected my life and my work here in Ventura and how it has affected my family and how hard it has been to find low-cost places in the city of Ventura. At this time, I work outside the city and I need to share my ride with co-workers because of the gas prices and other expenses and what I need to use my resources for important things and my housing bills. At this time, we pay more than $2,000 a month. That doesn't include the bills, electricity, gas, phone, cell phone services, and many other things. I am the mother of three children. I still have one kid in middle school. And the housing crisis has become so difficult that I keep finding myself looking for places to live in various areas of California. One of them I've considered is Bakersfield. It has been so difficult for me because my children have established their lives here in Ventura. At this time, they live with their father. And if I moved away, I would live hours away from my children. This is something I cannot do myself right now. I have decided to continue to live in Ventura, knowing that the cost of living keeps going up. And I will have to continue sacrificing certain things out of my life so I can continue to pay rent in this city. That is why here today I am for the ordinance an ordinance that would give priority housing for lower incomes and don't delay this anymore. 
Our community is in a crisis. The longer you ignore the needs of these families, of working families in this city, more families are going to be displaced. We need more options to live here, low-cost options to live here in Ventura, because many of our families are going through difficulties, similar to what I have been through in the last few years. Lastly, I would like to tell you that the city of Ventura needs to implement some protections for tenants in this year 2023. Do not delay this to 2024. This now has been delayed over and over. Tenants like me are in danger of being evicted because of the increase in the rental housing. We have no alternatives. We need low-income alternatives and protection for tenants. Thank you so much for your time. Our next speaker is Meyerling Via Roel, and she has requested service as well. Thank you. This is my story. Dear members of the council, my name is Mayerlin Villarroel. I am a cause leader. I have lived in Ventura for five years. I lived in the district one with my husband and two daughters. One of them has Down syndrome. We came to this country through political asylum from Venezuela. At the beginning, it was so hard to find a place to live. For about eight months, for my, uh, my sister's house, when I finally found a place that we could afford. Back then, the rent wasn't so high, but little by little, it's been increasing to the point that it's just so expensive. It has been difficult. Inflation eats up everything. Not too long ago, I filled up my tank and it was $100. It limits our meals, our purchases. That's why I'm here. I want to support the housing ordinance, which will be inclusive so that the new buildings will include a percentage of units for people that have very, very low income. Many people need units and they have very low income. 
Many people in this community are going through such hard times. So the city has the responsibility of helping the most vulnerable population. Lastly, I want to demand from this council to pre give priority to the protections of tenants this year. We cannot allow you to continue to delay this. Thank you. Our next speaker is Amparo Ramirez. Dear members of the council, my name is Amparo Ramirez, and I am a community leader with COSE. I am here to speak in favor of the housing ordinance, a solid, inclusive ordinance that includes more units for very low income. And also to tell you not to delay anymore because our community is going through a crisis. The longer you ignore these needs, of these families, working class families in this community, the more families are going to be displaced. I live in District 1. I have lived in Ventura for 25 years. I live as a tenant resident of this city. And I'm so disappointed because of the lack of protection that are being offered to tenants. And the fact that we continue to be rejected. I have six children. 15 years ago, I had two strokes. I was in a coma for a week. I had to relearn how to walk and speak. Then again, I became disabled. I used to have two jobs in order to pay the rent and the bills. I started working at 5 a.m. at Thatcher School in Ohio. Afterwards, at 5 p.m., I went to Pizza Hut till 10 p.m. I worked 13 hours a day, and so did my ex-husband. That was the only way that we could survive. My body could no longer 
put up with this. Now I cannot work. I only depend on my social security check. That's why I'm here in support of more units for rent or sale for people that have very low income. Because there are people like me that are disabled and they cannot afford the rent. They keep going up so much. And lastly, I implore you, the council, to retain the protections for tenants in 2023. We can no longer wait. Many residents like me have been going through years of these difficulties because of the housing. They should be addressed now. We thought this was going to reach the council in 2022. So we refuse to allow you to continue delaying this. We want protections for tenants now. And thank you for your time. Our next speaker is Ophelia Rodriguez, followed by Manuel Bustamante. Ophelia Rodriguez. Okay, then our next speaker is Manuel Bustamante. Manuel will be followed by Alex Garcia. No, I don't need. Um, I, as I look at you guys, the last time I was here, we were discussing the front project, front street project. And when I left, I thought, well, maybe they might do the right thing. And none of you did and disgusted me. And then I went from that point of being disgusted to wonder. And I wondered, what incentives are these people getting to ignore what their constituents are telling them, which is the city, and ignore what their planning commissioner the people that they picked to guide them on these decisions. I'm wondering, what incentives did you guys just turn around and go, you know what, we're going to go with the developers because they need money. The problem with this development is the fact that the cheapest one-bedroom apartment I found looking around here for all these new buildings, it was 2900 a month. Now, when I confronted my assembly member, my senator, state senators, they told me, oh, you, Governor Newsom's getting hammered up in Sacramento because of the homeless problem. And I told them, if you think that $2,900 a month for a one bedroom is going to solve the homeless problem, you need to see a doctor. 
because it's not. What it's going to do, though, it's going to create more homelessness. Because the guy that has an apartment building across from where I live, he's going to look and they go, they're getting 2900 for a one-bedroom? And I'm only getting 1800 Nah, no more of that. I'm going to jack my price up. And I have data to prove that. It happened in Seattle when big tech moved in. All of a sudden, firemen, teachers, they were homeless. They were living out of cars. I seen it with my own eyes, the, the interview of them interviewing people. You're not going to solve the homeless problem, problem by, with all these monolithic, ugly-looking apartments. I don't care what the developers say. They are wrong. I've seen it in the San Fernando Valley. I've seen what development does. It creates smog, creates traffic, and it creates violent drugs and gangs. I've seen that with my own eyes. And I started looking for another place, and I found one in Ojai that kind of mimicked the San Fernando Valley in a little ways. You guys got to open your eyes up. I sent you an article today. I don't know if any of you read it, but I'm going to keep sending you articles because that's what I do. I Thank look you. for articles to show you guys the right way and the right thing to do, and you're not doing it. Thank yet. you. Our next speaker is Alex Garcia, followed by Sarah Ostrander. Hello, council members and mayor. My name is Alex uh, Garcia. I'm an organizer with Cause, and I am going to be speaking on behalf of one of our youth leaders who was um, virtual on the on the line, but she had to leave. Uh, she sent me her public comment. So, good evening, mayor and council members. My name is Lena Newen. I'm a junior at Foothill Technology High School, and a youth leader for Cause. I am speaking today in support of the inclusionary housing ordinance and the recommendations to include at least 15% of units to be for very low-income residents. I have not always lived in the city of Ventura. From an early age, my family moved around constantly, renting in the city of Oxnard. Moving around so often greatly impacted my childhood as it affected my, the stability of my family, my social life, and most notably, the stability of my education. By second grade, I had been to four different schools as my parents were presented with more secure jobs in the city of Ventura, my family moved once again, this time halfway through my fifth grade school year. Since then, I have been living in District 5, Bill, Bill McReynolds District. As a resident in Ventura, I'm thankful to have found more stability within my life and especially in my education as I will be graduating next year. However, I currently live in a house with two other families, nine residents in total. I am very concerned with the skyrocketing cost of living in Ventura. My parents work very long hours, often 11 or more a day. I feel as though I hardly get to see them at all except for for when they come home for dinner at around 8 or 9 p.m. <clears throat> I am worried that this newfound stability is only temporary and that if housing costs continue to rise, we would have to move again. It is already difficult to see my parents deal with the burdens of high costs of living, but also having to witness it across the faces of the families living in my living room packs a different punch. To lessen the burden, I have been focusing on finding a, a part-time job that will financially help my family. However, it is a difficult task as I have to juggle with the responsibilities of my AP and honors schoolwork, volunteer hours at Community Memorial Hospital, and caring for my younger sister. With the rising cost of living and housing in Ventura, I know that it would not just be my family that will be impacted. 
families and especially children's lives will be negatively impacted by the fears of having to move on their shoulders. I know from experience that having to move just once lessened the stability in my life and made it much harder than it should have been for a second grade girl. This is why I'm commenting today. I urge the council to make tenant protections a priority for 2023, support inclusionary housing, and not to push them back uh, until 2024. Thank you for your time. Our next speaker, Sarah Ostrander, followed by Elizabeth Alvarez. Hello, my name is Sarah Ostrander, and I don't represent any group tonight as I'm speaking, except for I want, I, as I listen, I wanted to let you know that senior citizens in our town are very nervous and afraid because many of them make less than $2,000 a month. And we can't afford housing. If we lose our homes or if rents continue to go, um, so senior citizens are very worried and I want, you've been buried with a lot of statistics and percentages and big words and I don't always know what unhoused means, but I do know that I live in a mobile home park and I see the fear in my neighbor's eyes. So at least you have rent control for mobile home parks. I understand there's no rent control for uh, apartments and tenants. I strongly urge that you do that and I strongly urge that you adopt this proposal. Thank you. Our next speaker is Elizabeth Alvarez, followed by S. Flores. Good evening, uh, Mayor Palacios, uh, City Manager, um, City Attorney Doug Mike Johnson. You guys have seen me many times here speak for the people of the Casa del Pueblo. I'm here again. I'm going to keep on coming because there's people watching us right now that couldn't make it. They're, they want to get their voice out there. It's impossible. We need affordable housing. We've asked that so many times. Literally myself, I didn't want to come up here and talk because I know how this is going to go. I don't have another expectation. I've told you guys that maybe we should start raising money to get a campground for people to live in the streets, put tents up, use some of your space in the back because you guys don't, I don't know who takes the decisions here. I know it goes on votes. We know that this is not gonna go through and it's a waste of our time, but at least you're listening to what's coming. You're gonna have a city just like LA full of people laying around, no jobs. You won't be able to go out and walk in a safe neighborhood. You're, you keep building all these buildings. It, it's okay, it's good, it's, we're making a difference. But those buildings are empty. Housing has a lot of empty buildings that doesn't want people in there because you don't make as much rent because you're illegal. You can't have your spouse or your wife there. It all depends on where, what level of income you're at, and that's not fair. You guys have to make a difference now, not when you see the people out in the streets. I know a family right now that's living out in the beach with three kids, single mother with asylum as well, and housing doesn't want to help. These other charities don't want to help. If you don't have certain paperwork, they won't help you. 
So what is it that the mayor can do and the city council here can do for the people out there? You don't want to hear words, you want to see actions. So hopefully you guys can take this into consideration, but we're going to keep on coming as many times. Thank you, Manos Unidas, Causas, Matt Bello, for all these people that are helping us. But you're going to keep on seeing us here in city council till something is done. Thank you. Our next speaker is S. Flores, followed by Jackson Piper. S. Flores, you should be able to unmute yourself. Good evening, Mayor and City Council members. My name is Sonia Flores, and I'm here today on behalf of Homes for All, and I'm also a resident of the City of Ventura. Homes for All and VSSTF continue to advocate for the following percentages of affordable housing to be included within the inclusionary housing update. For new rental projects, we're asking that 15% of the units be allocated for very low income. For new for sale projects, we're asking that 15% of the units be allocated for low income or 20% for moderate income. I'm a renter in the city of Ventura and have been for several years. I had to leave my previous rental here in January of 2020 because the apartment complex had to undergo a remodel that included upgrading outdated and faulty electrical work. When all the residents were vacated from the property at that point, I was paying $1,500 per month for a one bedroom apartment. I just received notice that the remodel is complete and that the owners are now charging $3,600 per month for my one bedroom apartment. That is a $2,000 increase in a three year period. I cannot afford to leave the rental that I currently live in because of how high the other rentals are in the area right now. I make a good wage and I can't afford the rental prices in the city currently. What are families supposed to do that make minimum wage or less than I do? We have to support real solutions to this issue and inclusionary housing is one concrete step in the right direction. The blue committee, the blue ribbon committee's report on inclusionary housing was released in 2014. It has taken over eight years to get to this point of approving a citywide inclusionary housing ordinance that will include a requirement for rental projects. It will be several more years before this is updated again. It is absolutely vital that we include the deepest affordability requirements possible, both on the for sale and rental portions of the ordinance. Please have the courage to put in place our recommended inclusionary housing percentages, as this will have the strongest positive impact on our city's low income residents. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jackson Piper. Jackson, you should be able to unmute yourself. Jackson will be followed by Jeanette Daniel Whitney. Good evening. Uh, my name is Jackson Piper. I'm um, a resident of Unincorporated Newbury Park and one of the co-leads of Ventura County MB, which formed in late 2019 to advocate for more, uh, more and better housing throughout Ventura County. Um, I'm here tonight also as um, a co-signatory of the letters that were, or letter that was sent to you by VSSTF and Homes for All. Um, as my organization was uh, co-signatory as well. Um, as a YIMBY, I believe that more development of housing in our communities in Ventura County is uh, essential to help solve the housing problem that we've been facing down for, uh, for decades now. Um, but I also think that it is the duty of market rate development that uh, is desired or that developers desire to build in our community to help lift up um, the below market rate parts of our community which 
to be honest, is um, quite a substantial amount of our communities uh, because wages have not kept up with the vast increases of cost of living um, over the decades and especially over the past few years. So even though I like the, the idea of developing a lot more in Ventura County, it needs to be a responsible development and a socially conscious development that helps lift up um, and provide the affordable housing for others that can't afford market rate rents. So I'm asking you to support the VSSTF and Homes for All recommendation of 15% very low income for rental and 15% low income or 20% moderate income for for sale housing. These are not numbers that are gonna be set in stone forever. If they prove to be uh, an unjust burden on development and prevent development from happening in Ventura, they can be adjusted. I should also know that there are other things the city can do to try and compensate developers if those numbers prove to be too onerous for them to tackle head on. Uh, you can improve upon the state's density bonus, you can reduce parking requirements, you can find other ways to reduce the cost of development for those developers to enable more affordability and more quantity of affordable housing. So please um, take into consideration what BSSTF and Homes for All have recommended. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Jeanette Daniel-Whitney. Jeanette will be followed by Maria Navarro. Jeanette, you should be able to unmute yourself and activate your camera. And where is my camera? I do not see my camera. Anybody here, I, I'll, I'll just go ahead and speak. I'm uh, okay, let's see, made you a panelist okay? No, I do not see where uh, my- Go ahead, Jeanette, we can, we can hear you. Okay, that's good enough. Yes, um, I'm also here to support what the inclusionary housing ordinance, and I actually listening to this, I can't believe it's been on the table this long and we don't have one. That's actually mind boggling to me. Uh, but So I certainly support passing it and I wanna support passing it with what Homes for All is requesting, and that's been outlined for from you, over and over this evening. So I think you know what it is. And I would just like to add that I think there should be strong in lieu fees if you're going to have that. And because this is just a beginning, this is a start, this is one of the many pieces to help with the, the challenges that we're facing in finding places for all of our community members to live. And I'm, it's uh, one of the ones I want to mention, the in-lieu fees could go into, uh, I don't know, savings accounts and to be collected to dedicate to various kinds of housing land trusts. And uh, I, there's a lot of them out there. I went online and all you have to put in is housing land trusts or community land trusts and it's huge. There's a California Community Land Trust Network. And this would remove some of the land and housing from the speculative market and stabilize cost of buying homes and the cost of rents in neighborhoods. It doesn't mean that it will not uh, go up over time. People can make some uh, 
if they sell their home, not the land that it's on, but their home, they get some income from it. But this, what we're going, doing with the inclusionary housing ordinance is just a start. It's, uh, I, I would really like to see that people have a decent place to live because I trust absolutely that when they do, we have, they are able to do a much better job of being part of the larger community that they're not biting their nails to the quick about how they're going to keep their family together. And, uh, you know, we have people talk, I'm going to mention the extreme levels of income equality in our country, and this has to be addressed in many ways, but one of the ways it has to be addressed is finding ways of getting people into housing from the unsheltered, the unhoused, the even the undesirables into housing where they can help be helped and help themselves. So thank you very much. Our next speaker is Maria Navarro, followed by Gabrielle Vignon. Maria, you should be able to unmute yourself. Sorry. Sweet, thank you. Good evening, Ventura City Council. My name is Maria Navarro, and I do wish I were with you all today in person, but Alas, I am here in Zoom. Um, I'm a policy advocate at CAUSE, and you know, like many before me, uh, I asked the city to strengthen the proposed inclusionary housing ordinance by requiring that rental projects set aside 15% of their total units for very low income households and for, for sale projects to have a requirement of 15% low income or 20% moderate income. So as you know, the city of Ventura, like most of the coastal cities of California, is in a position where it has to look to infill development to create more housing. This means that there are a limited number of projects that could be developed in the city, and in turn, there's a limited number of units. Since we're facing a dire housing crisis, it makes sense that any projects coming to the city of Ventura should try to accommodate as many affordable units as possible. Last year, the density bonus law was given a boost, and this is precisely to make projects with a higher affordability threshold pencil out. The city of Ventura shouldn't even consider going any lower than what the density bonus law um, allows, right? Or what that requirement is. The affordability crisis more acutely impacts families that earn much less than the median area income, those who are extremely low income and acutely low income levels. These families are more likely to come from a marginalized community and are often renters, people of color, people with disabilities and others. So when we talk about the inclusionary housing ordinance, we're really talking about housing justice. By allowing families, families who have been historically shut out from home ownership, some of which have never had a stable home, that includes my household as well, access safe, affordable housing, we're taking one step forward toward equity. I ask that the council take the step today and approve the SSCFs and Home for All's recommendations. I also, like my coworkers and um, all the other cause leaders, like I also, and what, it, like I, what I said two weeks ago as well, um, also want to say that, you know, rental protections shouldn't be postponed any further either. Um, and just one little correction from Stephanie Caldwell's otherwise like well-formulated comment is that Oxnard is also updating their inclusionary housing ordinance. So it's not really a correction, it's just like a and, right? And uh, from the conversations that have happened with the city uh, staff in the last couple of months, it seems that they are actually going to increase their affordability uh, covenants to be uh, for 45 or 55 years. Uh, it's still going to planning con con 
commission, so I don't know exactly what the number is, but it is going to be uh, more than the 20 year that they have right now. Anyway, thank you so much and have a good evening. Our next speaker is Gabrielle. Gabrielle, you should be able to unmute yourself. Gabrielle, be followed by Eileen Mart uh, Martinez. Hi, uh, good evening. My name is Gabrielle Vignon. I am a resident of Piru here in Ventura County, an advocate for our local farm workers and affordable housing, and the executive director of House Farm Workers. Um, we support all affordable housing where our farm workers and retired farm workers can afford to live. We support the inclusionary housing ordinance recommendations made in the letter submitted by Homes for All to City Council which includes the following percentages of affordable housing in a revised inclusionary housing ordinance. Rental at 15% very low income, for sale at 15% low income or 20% moderate income, as well as the recommendation to move ahead now without any additional studies. Thank you. Hey, our next speaker is Eileen Martinez, followed by our final speaker, Mark Abbey. Eileenie, you should be able to unmute yourself. Um, good evening, council members. My name is Eileenie Martinez, and I'm a junior at Foothill Tech and a youth leader with Cause. My family lived in the city of Ventura for 19 years, but unfortunately, we were priced out. The truth is, many working class families simply cannot afford to live in Ventura anymore. In May of 2022, our rent was raised beyond what was affordable or reasonable for a 700 square foot two bedroom home. We had to move to Oxnard where we found a house for the price we were previously paying for an apartment in Ventura. This was an extremely difficult decision we made after weeks of discussion. Our lives are in Ventura. We grew up there. My younger sister and I go to school there. My dad works there and all of our friends live there. We love the city, its people and the vibrant culture within it. However, living there was just no longer feasible. Though it's a sadly common tale, I wish I could show you how hard my parents work. I watched them undertake hours of physical labor, often more than they were working while they were young. They do it without complaint, but I can see the pain it causes. I can feel it. I see it in the growing number of injuries my dad's aging body sustains. I see it in the constant state of exhaustion they are under. I feel it when something becomes too expensive, the it's okay for my parents, while I pretend not to notice the strain in their eyes. I feel it when it causes conflict, when money is simply not flowing in fast enough, no matter the sacrifices they make to keep us afloat. I work part-time to pay for my own essentials and outings, and am now looking for a second job, trying to end the feeling of powerlessness that comes over me when I see the emotional and physical toll excessive labor has on their person. I wish I could do more to help. Even so, we are lucky to be close enough to commute. Other people have been displaced so far that they have to start anew. The city of Oxnard has rent stabilization for their citizens with a 4% rent cap. In an age where a growing number of Americans are renting, particularly young Americans, protections for tenants are a must. You have the power and opportunity to do something to protect the families that are barely hanging on by adopting the inclusionary housing ordinance to have more very low income units built in Ventura. If Ventura had had this or something similar in place before, perhaps it could have helped my family stay in the city. The people are doing all that they can to stay in their homes, and now it's your turn to pass laws that protect us. Show that you care for the people of Ventura. I urge you not to delay tenant protections any longer. Thank you for your time. Our next and final speaker on this item is Mark Abbey. Mark, you should have the ability to unmute yourself. 
Good evening. Can you hear me? We can, yes. Yes, good evening, City Council. My name is Mark Abbey. I'm a member of the Ventura Planning Commission. I'm also the chair of the Montalvo Community Council. I am tonight, though, speaking on my own. I'm not speaking on behalf of uh, Planning Commission or Montalvo Community Council. Um, as we all know, the inclusionary housing ordinance has been a long time in coming. At the Planning Commission meeting in February of last year, Planning Commission asked that the consultant study uh, deeper levels of affordability. We expected that to come back within 90 days. It didn't come back until, I believe, December. Unfortunately, I could not make that meeting and was sick, so I was not able to weigh in at that time. Inclusionary housing is just that, inclusionary. It's intended to uh, target er areas of affordability that the market can't afford. We have, if we continue, we need to build market rate housing. We need more housing in this town. We all know that. We're, we ask, have to figure out though, who are we building for? Are we building for LA investors, people from Santa Barbara? Nothing against them, but what about the residents of people who live in Ventura already? What about our children? What about all the various socioeconomic strata, you know, social justice and so forth? Um, I am calling in tonight to lend my support to Judy Alexander, uh, uh, Claudia Armand, uh, Carl Morehouse, uh, Homes for All, we need to decide tonight uh, to have an, uh, a new inclusionary housing. We don't need to postpone it any longer, but we should not merely go along with staff's recommendation as put forth by the consultant. Admittedly, it was a very conservative uh, recommendation and, and as other speakers have suggested, believe we need to go deeper on levels of affordability and uh, therefore, I would endorse Homes for All's recommendation. I won't get into the details, but I hope you make the right decision tonight. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Mayor, that concludes our public speakers on item number 15. So I will now close the public hearing and go to council deliberations. Or council questions, deliberations. Uh, Councilmember Campos. Mayor, Mayor, if I may, a point of order. Are we having council ask questions based on the public input or are we going to deliberations? Um, my questions and deliberations, yes. So questions can be asked for, to the presenter. Is that what your question is? Yes, and, and Mr. Uh, Mayor, if, if I can clarify. So yeah. we will have to open, reopen the public hearing to ask questions. Once the questions have been answered, we can close the public hearing and go to the deliberation portion. Say that one more time, please. So for clarifying questions, questions of staff, uh, then we will open, keep the public open hearing open until all questions have been asked. Then we'll close the public hearing and then we'll move to the deliberation portion. I'm sorry. So we'll now go to council questions. Thank you, Councilmember Johnson. Mayor. Councilmember Campos. Take a bio break. Oh, I was going to say, can we take a 10-minute uh, recess before we go into... Is, okay, let's take 10 minutes quick because we've got quite a bit on the agenda tonight. You five. Okay. <laughs>
Okay, uh, if you'll take your seats, let's get started. I don't want to wait any longer than eight years on this issue, right? We had some questions in the City Council. I think Councilmember Campos, you were first. Uh, while you were preparing the recommendation, did you consider at all extremely low income, which the consultant said comes in at 33,850? Thank you, Councilmember Campos. Kathy, are you online? Just want to give Kathy an opportunity to talk here about what a extremely low would look like. Kathy, we're having a hard time hearing you. I can see you, but I can't hear you. Okay, Kathy, oh, try oh. now. Okay, can you hear me now? We can, yes. Okay, great. Um, Typically, extremely low income is not included in an inclusionary policy because of the fact that depth of that, that income down at 30% of area median income creates a gap that is, is so large as it needs to be, typically needs to be funded by an outside leveraging source like low income housing tax credits or, or section aid, et cetera. And so for a private developer of a market rate unit to take on extremely low income units, the number of units you could support is, is very small. And so typically very low income is, is the, the depth of, of the affordability, even though there are some programs, um, including Golita, that, that has an extremely low income requirement. But I'm, I'm not recommending it um, as being economically viable. And, and are you aware that the minimum wage in California is $15 an hour? There is no question, and I, and I want to thank you for that question. There's no question that the unmet need for deep affordability is exhibited all over California, if not the United States, and in Ventura in specific. But the, the fact is that if you establish an affordable requirement that is too stringent, you will create a constraint to development, and then you won't see development at all. And so you need to create that balance where a developer still wants to develop in Ventura, and provide the affordable units. And if you if you create something that creates too much of a gap, then then that will stop. And and so professionally, it's in my opinion, a dedicated affordable housing projects that can get low income housing tax credits. There are a variety of state funding sources available out now to help with with permanent supportive housing, with extremely low income housing, etc. There better suited to 100% affordable projects and are in fact targeted that way in the competition. Again, no question the need is there. The need is there and we're, we're hoping that we'll find ways to desegregate the housing stock in Ventura. I that, understand. That was why I asked that question. Sure. And I'll hold my other questions. Council Member Halter. Great, thank you, uh, Mr. Mayor. Um, just two more questions is to staff. Is one, uh, on the for sale units that are covered, that would be covered by this ordinance, if somebody was to purchase one of those and then five years from now sell it, and even if there's a covenant for 45 or 55 years or in perpetuity, um, how do we control what type of market, what type of uh, 
uh, Wake Home <laughs> price they could get for that home. Um, because I assume that there's a certain amount of built-in equity where the, that person or that couple or family would be able to start building some, some wealth, right? Thank you, Councilmember Halter. I'll, I'll let actually Kathy and Ethan talk a little bit about this because the for sale doesn't really build equity in the way buying a, a house does that is not income restricted. And Kathy can speak a little bit more to what that looks like. And I'll speak to that, and then I'll, I'll let Ethan speak to the, the protections that the city will have to, to keep those covenants in place. So you have two ways to do a, an ownership housing inclusionary policy. One way is the way the recommended structure is for this program, which is each time during the covenant period, the house resells at an affordable price to an affordable household. That way you keep the affordable unit in the inventory. But as Netta said, then what happens is because it has to be affordable to the next buyer, there's not significant equity appreciation, if any. And so we're dealing in a situation now, for example, in the last 10 years, we've had generationally low interest rates. Well, now that we have significantly higher interest rates, that it could possibly, the affordable sales price could actually fall, right. which, which, is, which is a constraint to having this irrevocable covenant over a 45-year term. But it's, again, the balance between keeping a unit affordable or having it leave, you know, having it leave the inventory. If it leaves the inventory, if it's structured in a way so that the time when the homeowner wants to sell it, they can sell it at a market rate, then the way that's typically structured is that the market rate price when the unit is originally sold minus what the affordable price is becomes it's a paper loan. So say the affordable price is $400,000 and the market rate price is $900,000. Then that $500,000 gap becomes an obligation that homeowner owes to the city when they sell at the market rate plus a share of the appreciation and equity that's occurred during that time. If you set up the program like that, then you're helping a homeowner build equity and build wealth. If you set it up as a resale control, then the equity that they will have built up is generally the principal they will have paid down on their mortgage. Plus, if the median income has gone up and up and the interest rates haven't gone up, there's a little bit of appreciation. But it shouldn't be expected that you'll make a lot of money or build up a lot of equity with an irrevocable covenant. I think that's a fine balance, but that's thank you for that answer, Tim. Appreciate it. And, You're welcome. Um, uh, secondly, is when it comes to um, uh, the rental uh, uh, part of the ordinance, is um, do we reevaluate the AMI every single year for our community? Okay, so then um, rents could, not that we want them to by any means, but could go up on an annual basis or thereafter, um, assuming that it stays inside. Uh, the percentages that are dictated by the very low income or low income re restrictions put upon that that property is that correct? Uh, Councilmember Hartzler, yes, the rent and or income levels can fluctuate depending on what what's occurring in the economy and environment. So yes, uh, they could go up, they could go down based on that. So could the income level brackets for those? And that would probably be evaluated annually. Yes. Okay, great, thank you. Councilmember Johnson. 
Thank you, Mayor. I have a number of questions that were raised from um, so many of our public speakers. So, uh, Ms. Ayer, Claudia Armand said that um, we could go deeper without requiring the financial analysis. Obviously, we did the financial analysis, and we don't want to constrain development. Um, but how deep could we go under, if, if Ms. Armand was correct, under the law without having a financial analysis? I would actually defer to the city attorney's office on that. Thank you for that question. Um, we have Ethan Walsh on the phone who is available to, he's been doing the lion's share of the legal work on this uh, ordinance and he can answer that question. Can, can you hear me okay? We can, yes. Okay, thank you. Um, so just to clarify on that point, um, the language that the speaker was, speak, was referring to is language that was that was enacted by um, AB 1505, which was the bill that Kathy was referring to, um, that reenacted the ability to uh, to, to impose uh, rental um, inclusionary housing, which wasn't the case with the when the Palmer um, decision was in effect. Um, and what it what that um, provision says is it says that uh, you can go to 15 percent. Um, of uh, low income of 80% essentially. And if you go deeper than that, then HCD has the ability to request a review and, and a financial analysis for your, um, for your uh, inclusionary housing ordinance as it applies to rental. Um, what the financial analysis that Kathy did is actually based on the case law that's been uh, developed over time that essentially says that, as she mentioned at the start, that um, when you have an inclusionary housing ordinance, in order for it to be uh, a legal um, ordinance and not kind of affect the regulatory taking, you have to ensure that the ordinance is, um, is not confiscatory and ensures that the developer will have a reasonable rate of return. And so in order to essentially ensure that your ordinance is defensible under that, it is advisable to do a financial review. And in the kind of the key case on this, which is a, a case that went to the California Supreme Court out of the city of San Jose, where they did uphold their, um, their inclusionary housing, housing ordinance, it was based on this type of financial review. And so there aren't really cases out there where a, uh, where an ordinance has been upheld by the courts and they haven't done any form of financial review. So the, the language in the statute, it's not, it's not essentially a, a provision that says, well, if you go to this level, you can just do um, inclusionary uh, housing up to 15% at 80% or, or below. It's really something that you need to look on a community by community basis, because obviously, the situation, say, in the Central Valley or in the Inland Empire is very different than you see in somewhere like Ventura or San Francisco or San Diego. It really does depend on the, uh, the conditions within each individual community. So so long way of saying um, we do think you have to do a financial analysis um, in order to support your inclusionary housing ordinance and avoid being subject to potential uh, challenge. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I, I appreciate it. Um, Ms. Armand also uh, referred to development that is going on already. What is 
our, when we're speaking here about um, ownership, for sale de development, what is our current requirement? It's 15% 15 low or 20% moderate, is that correct? Thank you, Council Member Johnson. Are you referring to for sale for or 15%? Fifteen percent moderate. Moderate. Our current one is fifteen percent moderate, or because there's the fifteen or twenty percent for for sale. Is there not? Sorry, let me pull it up really quickly. I believe it's fifteen percent. So there's. Let me go back to the slide because it depends. Sorry. So for, as you can see on the slide here, current inclusionary housing program, there, it's broken up in thresholds of 59 units or less or 60 units or more. 60 units or more is 15%. 59 units or less is one to seven units. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Um, certainly we have seen uh, inclusionary units. Sorry. All our screens went black too. It was pretty. It was pretty scary. Um, but so, uh, Ms. Armand essentially said, I, "I don't want to put words in her mouth, but to paraphrase her, that um, the uh, inclusionary requirements on for sale units was weakened unnecessarily, um, considering what we've actually seen in this city." Um, would you agree with that, Ms. Ayer? So um, when the original draft of the inclusionary housing program went to planning commission, it did include 15% moderate in income units for the for sale units. Um, at that time, the planning commission recommended that, go to the slide here, which was on February 23rd, the planning commission re recommended that we go back and study deeper affordability levels and do a financial analysis. When that financial analysis, and again, we told the planning commission that we believed it would actually lessen what the recommendation was once the financial analysis was done. Um, and it, it turned out that when the analysis was done, that the recommendation turned into 10% moderate income for the for sale units based on the analysis. Yes, and, and my question is what we have currently with 15%, has that been a constraint? For the for sale units? Um, for the for sale projects that have, have been doing 60 or more units, they have done that. And can you name some of those projects? Haley Point, Haley Point was one. Yes. Haley Point was one. I'm sorry, I don't have all of okay. the projects off the top of my head. Okay. Um, and, and as we move on to Matt Bellow's questions, and this is getting more into rentals, um, and I don't know who would be best to, to answer this. In his email, he raised this issue about uh, other cities that have gone deeper, and he, he mentions Goleta and Agoura Hills. And, and points to uh, how much development has actually happened, how, how with their deeper requirements they've actually managed to at least get permitted um, large numbers of affordable units. Have you looked at that? Has Ms. Has, uh, Head looked at that? Yes, Ms. Head has. Kathy, are you able to speak to Golitas and Arroyo, or I'm sorry, Agora Hills um, Inclusion Housing Programs? 
I am, and, and, and thank you for the question. I would actually like to point out that I did not mislead the Planning Commission. I just think that's an important point to make. Um, so I looked at Agoura Hills. It, it's absolutely correct that I hadn't put it in the original analysis. It wasn't there. And then I wasn't asked to do a new analysis after the analysis I did. But the results of looking at Goleta and Agoura Hills wouldn't have changed my financial analysis in any event. But the situation in Agoura Hills is they've had inclusionary housing since 1987. They haven't had an inclusionary unit built since 2013. They do have the two projects that Mr. Bellow referred to in, in the planning process. They've been in the planning process for some period of time. And as of the, the fourth quarter 2022, they were still in the planning process. Um, so that those, if those happen, they will be the first unit since 2013 that have been built under that program. It's not necessarily because solely because of the inclusionary housing requirement. It's, it's difficult to develop in Agoura Hills. Um, same situation with Goleta, essentially. There are two projects that have been in the planning stages for a significant period of time, both of which have 60 units in them. One has been stalled because, well, actually both have been stalled with the, with the stated reason because of lack of water. Um, there's a, an actual large-scale project that was recently approved by the Planning Commission where, um, uh, let me see, a significant number of units, um, 104 affordable units will be included in that project. But those are being developed not by the private sector developer, but by the Santa Barbara County Housing Authority. And it'll be being developed with low-income housing tax credits. And the city of Goleta is actually putting in a million-dollar loan to that as well. So that's not like a traditional inclusionary housing program project. That's more like an affordable housing project like I discussed before, where you get the outside leveraging and you have dedicated affordable units. So again, Glead is another place that's difficult to develop. So it's not to say that it's only the inclusionary housing requirement, but we can't also say that it's successfully generating inclusionary housing units. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for looking into those and uh, being ready to answer those questions tonight. I, I appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. When we look at, and this would be a question for staff, uh, Jackson Piper um, pointed out that the numbers could be revisited if, if um, would that be either way, I'm assuming? Or, or would, it, would, it be, would it be possible for the city council to adopt, to go deeper on affordability requirements? And if we find that it is constraining development to ease them and vice versa? Again, I would defer to our city attorney's office on this. Um, Mr. Mayor, Councilmember Johnson, I'll defer to Ethan Walsh. I would say that uh, I think his reasoning would be the same, uh, that, that any time that we go outside of the, uh, what's supported um, by the analysis, uh, we would sub subject the city to litigation. But Mr. Walsh may have something to add to that. Um, I don't, I don't have a lot to add to it. I, I would say, you know, when you make a decision like this, if someone does want to challenge it, w the question is going to be based on the record that you have in front of you um, and, and that the court would look at, um, you know, all the analysis that's in place. And, uh, and what you have currently have is you have the Kaiser Marston study that is a, a fairly detailed financial analysis of what appears to be viable. Um, 
I think it's correct that there's some subjectivity to this, obviously, you know, you're projecting what development cycles are going to look like over time. And that, um, you know, takes, uh, it, it's an imperfect science, I would say. But when you have data, like what we have in the record right now, um, and then if you were to go deeper than that, I think you would want to have some more evidence that would support that deeper affordability. And when I say evidence, I mean like, like financial analysis um, beyond that, or you could be subject to, to a challenge from say a developer or some other, you know, outside interest group. Um, if you, uh, you know, you can obviously make adjustments, but, but that's a situation where if the, if the data is not in the record, when you adopt your ordinance, then you're exposing yourself to more risk. Thank you, Mr. Walsh. I have a, a couple follow-up questions for you on that. First, to clarify, um, if we were to go deeper tonight and then uh, decide later to change them, that would probably not require another financial analysis. Is that correct? I guess that would depend when, when, you, when you decide to, to change those, regardless, right? Because things change over time. If you say, wait five years, I would say, and Kathy can speak to this, but I don't think her, the analysis that she's done currently would necessarily um, you know, hold for that long, but you would wanna rely on a five-year-old analysis. Um, if you were to turn around and do it just shortly, shortly after this, then yes, it would probably still hold, but I don't think you'd wanna kind of make that shift to that, that quickly. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, This, this, I suppose, is a question for Ms. Ayer. Maria Navarro um, said that, you know, the dead city bonus law was recently given a boost uh, to accommodate um, inclusionary housing requirements. Is that your understanding of how things stand? I thank you, Councilmember Johnson. I am not aware of the state adjusting its state density bonus law because of inclusionary housing programs. Specifically, I would hate to speculate on on behalf of the state, but um, each year the state density bonus law is adjusted, and we are seeing a trend of deeper affordability or extra densities being allowed uh, or more concessions depending on income, depths, and amount of units. Thank you. And then last question for staff really is a procedural one, and this, is, um, this was raised essentially by, by the comments of Mark Abbey. Um, at this last meeting, uh, you know, we're looking at a planning commission recommendation that came to us, but there was a motion that failed on a 3-3 vote. There was a tie vote, is that correct? And that was the meeting where Mark Abbey was absent? Back in December, there were several motions that were made that didn't pass until an ultimate motion that was unanimously supported was voted on and forwarded on. And I'm, do you know what the, the one that, I don't have it right now, I suppose I could look it up. I hate to pull out my computer in the middle of a public hearing. Um, what the motion was that failed on the 3-3 vote with Mark Abbey's absence? Uh, if you give me a moment, I can look it up. It has not been approved by the Planning Commission yet since they have not met since that meeting.
a motion was made to adjust the affordability um, to 10% low, 5% very low um, for rental projects and adjust the for sale units to 10% moderate, 5% low income. Uh, and that motion failed. I'm sorry, could, I, I wasn't able to catch it, keep up with that on my note. Sure, so, let me so repeat. 10% low. For the rentals, 10% yeah. low, 5% very low. And for the for sale units, 10% moderate and 5% low. That motion failed. Thank you. And that was, it failed on a tie vote with Mark Abbey's absence, yes? The motion failed 3-3. Yes. Okay, thank you. Those are my questions. Thank you, Mayor. Councilmember McReynolds. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, so, kind of in my wheelhouse here, but uh, let's start with that uh, on July 27th of 2022, uh, Up For All uh, issued a study that said Ventura County is the most underserved uh, housing uh, in, in the nation, of all the counties in the nation, we are number one in terms of being underserved on it, So, which has created the situation we're in today. Um, additionally, you know, making housing more expensive doesn't make it more affordable. So it, that's a, yeah. So with all that stated, uh, my first question is regarding the in-lieu fee. Uh, what are we gonna do with those funds? Those funds, uh, thank you, Councilmember McReynolds, those funds are made available for affordable projects. Um, they will be pulled together in a specific account where um, affordable housing developers can then apply to use those funds as funding to help build their, their projects. And so that pool then becomes available to support affordable projects. And then what is the tiebreaker score uh, for an affordable project uh, when it's presented to the state? Uh, Kathy, are you able to, Kathy or Ethan, um, weigh in on this one? Well, I guess I don't understand what you mean by tie. It, you mean there's a tiebreaker on the housing fund in the yes. housing, like the low moderate income yeah. housing asset fund. Yeah, what is so right? when you apply for the tax credits? Uh, oh, the tax yeah. credits. Yeah. Oh, well then you'd have to have a project to, in the competitive tax credit round, the nine percent. You'd have to have an overall. Um, median income affordability at 46%, and then any project applying for a 9% credit would have to get all the points okay. in order to, to achieve it. And then the where the tiebreaker comes in is essentially, the, the easy way to say it, is the percentage of local funds in the project. So the more local funds in the project, the more competitive. So the more income, the more in Luffy we collect as an agency, the more competitive our projects are. Presumably, if you're then contributing it to a tax credit project, yeah. Right. Okay. So, regarding the in lieu, does our proposal allow us to mix and match? So, it, can we do 10% uh, as units built on the ground and pay 5% for tax credit or for uh, in lieu, or does it is one or the other? Great question, Councilmember McReynolds. Ethan, would would you like to chime in on this one? I actually think Kathy may know that better off the top of your head. As it's structured right now, it's an either or. Not to say that you couldn't do it as, as a mixture, 
but right now it's an either or, except in the case of a fractional unit obligation. So say, for example, somebody owed 3.7 or 3.3, depending on which way you want to look at it, units, that, three, that 0 0.3 or that 0 0.7, as proposed, could be paid as an in lieu fee rather than producing. And then in terms of need, where, where do you feel like the greatest need? Is it on the for sale side or the rental in terms of where we need to see inclusionary housing? I think the most, I mean, in my opinion, the most, the most successful and stable type of inclusionary housing is rental. And the reason for that is you can go to deeper affordability than you can with ownership and be financially feasible. But also because the tenants in, a, in an apartment project aren't expecting to be growing equity. And so as long as the policy on ownership is that you have to sell and resell at affordable, then there's not a lot of equity being built up, which leads to disappointment of the people who, who purchase the unit as an affordable unit. Whereas in a rental unit, again, at the deeper affordability, people move in, people move out, and they get the benefit of the affordable rent for as long as they live there, which is the benefit. Okay. Um, when would this ordinance become effective? Uh, we talked about a GPAC doing the land use decisions and moving the goalposts on people. So would this become effective? Let's, let's pretend we adopted it today and you know, does it become effective March 31st? It, I realize there's a second reading, just humor me. Uh, so if it was adopted tonight, it would have its second reading on March 13th and then the ordinance would be in effect 30 days after that. So how many projects do we have in process right now? On, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not sure. So, but we have projects that are in process that are under the assumption that they're going to be building to the current inclusionary housing ordinance, and then we're going to move the, potentially move the goalposts on them. Um, so the projects are obviously in various different stages, and it would be ba basically whatever that stage of the project was invested in. So if it was vested under former regulations, it would stay under former regulations. If the project wasn't vested, then it would be, like any other regulations, would be um, uh, subject to it, the regulations that are in the place at the time. And then how does that factor in with SB 330? Right, so it would depend on where, what stage an SB 330 application was. Okay, and then uh, I have a question regarding parking standards. So essentially, if we adopt the program as proposed, we're essentially eliminating our parking standards for all residential uh, because they would qualify automatically for the state density bonus? They would be able to use state density bonus parking requirements. Automatically, so essentially eliminating our parking standards citywide for any development over seven units. Based on states, they would be able to enact state parking requirements. Okay. And then I think my last question is, what are we saying in the housing element that our inclusionary housing program would include? The housing element just identifies that we are in the process of doing one. It doesn't specify what that program would say at this time. Okay. And then I guess, well, I have one last question. Uh, let's touch on perpetuity. Uh, so is that illegal, are we illegally allowed to covenant something in perpetuity or does it have to have a timeline? Uh, I believe we are legally allowed, but I'm happy to let Ethan elaborate on that. That's my last question, thank you. Yes, I think you are legally allowed to do that. Um, and we've researched that issue and done that in multiple cities in the past. So I'm comfortable with you doing it. 
in perpetuity for rental units. Um, I, I think it was mentioned in your staff report, but we don't recommend that you have in perpetuity uh, restrictions for um, for for sale units. That, okay, um, Councilmember Duran, followed by Councilmember Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, so it's my understanding, first of all, thank you for all the time that you've spent here tonight and all the information that you've given us. Um, it's my understanding that if somebody in the rentals, if somebody rents a unit at, let's say, very low income, and then they get a, a promotion at work or they make some extra money, that when they, because their income gets checked every year, correct? Yes, it gets assessed yearly. Okay, so then they, they make over that. And so now they're, they were in a low income unit and now they make over that. So it's my understanding that they would have to move. Is that correct? Um, I will let Ethan elaborate on this if you don't mind, Ethan. Did you no, I'm, I'm fine with that. So it, it, it really depends on how you set up the program, but typically what we do when we set up the, the regulatory agreements is we do build in some level of cushion and when you know it really depends on what kind of project you have if there is projects at multiple income levels so if you have say very low income and low income units etc then we will uh, allow you know units to kind of ship their you know turn a a a, a very low income unit into a low income unit and then have the next available unit become a very low income unit. Um, and then we also usually allow them to get some level above the restricted rental um, re, uh, requirement before we will have them actually move out of the house because we're, you know, especially at the lower income levels, I think most cities are, are sensitive to not wanting to, to essentially remove someone from their home for getting a a slight raise but on the same hand especially with rental units you don't want to necessarily have a unit held up by someone who uh you know who, who has gotten to a level where they could afford market rate housing and then you have such a dire need for um, people who don't have housing at all so you do like to be able to make those units available as you're able thank you so much so so it, we could actually if someone is in very low income let's say a one bedroom apartment, we could say if they exceed that amount with, with how much income they're making, we could actually keep them in that same apartment and now charge them low income rent. And, and, then, and then if they went above that, we could actually keep them in a moderate, right? Instead of, instead of looking for different units to move them and we can keep them there until it was time to move out if they made more than that. As Ethan explained, if and Ethan, please elaborate if I misspeak here. Um, if a project has very low and low units in that project, and one of the very low tenants is now in a low income bracket, uh, you, we could redesignate that a low and the next available affordable unit that comes up adjust that to very low. So some flexibility when there is a mix in the project. I, I think that's important, right? So. Thank you. Um, I made an earlier mistake and somehow skipped the deputy mayor. So I'll go to her and then come back to Councilmember Johnson. 
It's no problem, thank you. Um, most of my questions have been addressed. I did wanna go back though to, um, if I can just have staff explain uh, a little bit more about the 10% versus the 15% that we've heard as being recommended and, also, and that we've heard from the audience tonight, because I think there's a, obviously a difference there, but I, I kind of just want to um, just walk through that. What, what would the 10% mean versus a 15? And then I know at the 15%, we're looking at either low income or, or moderate or 20% moderate. So just kind of can you elaborate a bit on that? Sure, Deputy Mayor. Are you speaking specifically to the for sale units or the rental or both? Both. Okay. Um, so as uh, what's in the proposed inclusionary housing program is for the for sale units that we do 10% at modern, moderate income levels. There are uh, public speakers who are wanting that deepened beyond that to either 15% moderate or 15% or low and then even 20% moderate. So increasing the percentage in the project as well as the affordability. Uh, for the pr proposed inclusionary housing program on the rental side, um, the recommendation in the staff recommendation is 15%, five of which is very low and 10% of which is low. And there are, are members of the public who would like that to go to all 15% very low. Very low. Thank you. Um, and so regarding that, um, I think it was asked earlier whether or not we could adjust those numbers. So let's say we go with the 15%. Um, at some point, if we see that that's a burden, can that be readjusted? And I think I heard staff and or <laughs> consultants say that we can readjust, should that be needed? Um, sure, Ethan, do you mind uh, speaking on this topic again about um, adopting a deeper affordability and adjusting in the future? Sure, so, so first I would say, if you were going to adopt a, a um, a deeper affordability, um, I do think you would want to do additional analysis first. And, and, I, and I don't know what that analysis would say. So, but basically, if, if you're, you're going to adopt a deeper affordability in order to not risk potential challenge from, say, you know, a developer or a, uh, an interest group who, who represents developers, um, you really need to have some data to, to back those numbers up. And what, what you have right now is you have the Kaiser Marston study that supports the, the, the staff recommendation. Um, and if there was going to be uh, you know, an effort to get, get deeper, then you would have to do, I think, additional analysis. I, I wouldn't be comfortable um, recommending that you do that, go deeper without additional um, data in front of you. Um, and again, you know, I, 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 I don't know that the data is out there to, to support this and Kaiser Marston has spent a lot of time on this. So, so I would say staff recommendation and my recommendation is that you do not go deeper um, without, without, with the information that you have in front of you right now. Um, and 
that that said, you know, you can always make adjustments in the future and you can always do analysis at a later time based on, you know, the changes in the housing market or whatever. And it may be that at a point in the future, you have um, additional information that, that indicates that you that you could go to a deeper affordability level. Um, and if I could just if I could just make a quick point, there is such a gap between the market rate price and the affordable low income price that if you were to impose a 15% low income requirement, given that gap, given gaps of $600,000 a unit plus, you're going to wipe out the land value completely. I mean, Ethan's right; it would require more analysis, but just back of the napkin, if you did if you did 15% low at the current market rate prices versus the allowable low income prices at that kind of affordability gap, you'll wipe out the land value. Hmm. Okay, thanks for that feedback. Um, and, and thank you for the clarification earlier on the Golita and Agora Hills um, examples. That was one of my other questions. Um, and I think last, um, in regards to, again, going back to the 15% low income and 20% moderate, should we go that route? It's, it's, the, it's up to the developer whether they do 15% low income or 20% moderate, correct? Or do we say? I don't want to speak on behalf of the the public comment, but I believe it was either to do 15% um, low or do 20% okay, moderate. Gotcha. Okay, misunderstood. Great. I think um, that's it for now. Thank you. Councilmember Johnson. <clears throat> Thank you so much, and I'm glad we're on this slide. I, I want to go back to this for sale requirement, 60 units or more requires 15%. Um, as I recall with Haley Point, and, and I, I note that um, one of my colleagues is very familiar with that. Um, perhaps, Ms. Ayer, you can explain this, because there were emails that were shared with the public as part of a Public Records Act request in which our community development director said to Warmington, the developer of Haley Point, um, you know, you can do either 15% low or if you would rather, you could do 20% moderate. And they chose the 20% moderate. Does that, does that sound correct? Uh, Council Member Johnson, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the emails that you're speaking of that were um, circulated about whether they do 15% or 20%. The requirement is 15% moderate uh, based off our interim inclusionary housing requirement. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, and then, going back to the parking requirements for for density bonuses, uh, parking requirements are one thing that they can use a density bonus for. What are some other things they can that developers can use a density bonus for? State density bonus allows when certain percentage of affordability and depths of affordability are included in a project that you can. Um, ask for a density based on uh, the charts that are in state density bonus law. For example, a 15% very low income rental project would be allowed to do 50% density on top of what is allowed. 
by that regulation. It does allow for a reduction in parking standards based on what state law says in the density bonus ordinance. Um, it does allow for a number of concessions um, that are identified uh, again in the regulations about certain percentage and income levels all allot you a certain amount of incentives or concessions. Um, and state density bonus law does allow waivers as well. So there are a variety of incentives in the program. Thank you. And so some of those concessions include things like floor area ratio, setbacks, building height as well? Um, the state law allows for whatever the developer would like the concession on. That would be a hindrance or restriction to them being able to build those affordable units. So that could look like FAR. It could look like heights, setbacks, um, uh, open space requirements, things of that nature. Thank you so much. Those are my questions. Thank you, Mayor. Councilmember Campos. <clears throat> so for you, for the Community Development Department, not the consultants, what do you see as the goal or the purpose of completing this inclusionary housing ordinance? What, what will we gain from it? Um, thank you, Council, Council Member Campos. Um, as I stated in the beginning of the presentation, staff's goal was to try and develop as um, deep of affordability um, inclusionary housing program as possible given state law and the financial analysis. The goal would be to add a diversity of housing stock in our community um, to meet our arena housing numbers, um, that the state has uh, given us as, as a, a task to plan for and to um, create inclusionary units throughout the city so there isn't a concentration in one area or the other, but that they are able to uh, locate in market rate development projects and be um, accessible to the amenities that those other units have. So that was the, the, the primary goal. So we wanted to adhere to state law, get the maximum that we could to be able to diversify our housing stock. Okay. Thank you. Councilmember Halter. Great, thank you. Uh, quick question is, in regards to the AMI, it's calculated by city, correct? It's, it's based on county numbers. County, so uh, the AMI for Agora is the same as the AMI for Ventura? No. I, I mean, it uses um, costs and, well, for for sale for the land sale and costs and for rentals for this area. But yes, the county does put out numbers. So do we know how we, how, since we've used the comparison of Agora and Glita, how the numbers they're using to calculate low income and uh, moderate income, how their AMI numbers differ from Ventura's? Can, can I jump in on that? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they don't vary. They don't vary. The actual AMIs are the same countywide. What what Ned is referring to is the affordable sales price or the affordable rents could vary based on a number of factors that are city specific. But the AMIs are the same throughout Ventura County. Any any city, the county has the same AMI number. Okay, uh, that's great, because I was just afraid that um, I know the cost to build is no different. As a matter of fact, it's probably more expensive in Ventura to build than it is in Agora or in Glita. 
If there's no other questions, Mr. City Clerk, can I now close the public hearing? That's right, Mr. Mayor. Yes, you could close the public hearing and go to deliberation. Okay, consider it closed. On to City Council deliberations. Councilmember Halter, back to back. I'll make it quick. Um, okay, first off, I just want to say uh, that the lack of affordable housing by uh, most of our uh, it, um, assessment is by far California's biggest issue. Everything else pales in comparison with all the problems the state has that we're trying to address. So I think without a doubt, creating affordable housing uh, is my top priority. And because I see the damage that it's doing not to have affordable housing, though uh, I've come to realize that really, the only people that really benefit by the, by the high cost of housing are people who choose to sell out and move out of state and take their profits with them. The rest of us are uh, choosing to live here. We don't really care how much our houses are worth because we're not gonna sell out. We love this place and we're gonna stay. So I just wanna say that because um, what, we, what we have got to watch, because we had a speaker say about what incentivizes us to maybe agree or disagree on something? Well, hopefully it's because we all have the best intent to make the best decision on behalf of our community. That's why I'm here, and I'm pretty confident it's why my, why my colleagues are here. With that said, it's looking at the intended and unintended consequences. And having been on this planet almost 63 years, I've seen a lot of unintended consequences made by very good people making policy decisions that led us to the point that we're at today. And I would venture to say that the imbalance of housing was completely created by us trying to stop our cities from growing. And by doing that, you can see the difference between downtown and midtown Ventura in particular. When it was allowed to grow organically, we had 600 square foot homes right next to 4,000 square foot homes. And that, that enriched our neighborhood. They have a variety of people at different economic levels and different points in their life living in the same neighborhood. And that's why I choose to live in downtown Ventura. With that said, is we have since tried to make up for all the policy decisions that we've made by doing things like inclusionary, which is why I believe tonight we're gonna to pass an inclusionary housing policy. It just comes down to percentages and some details. But I think it's because um, there's been so many unintended consequences, and we're pricing out people for the next generation, people just starting out in life, to being here. We need all economic levels to be a sustainable city, and we're not sustainable today. Um, I would say that um, in watching for those unintended consequences, um, let's see, the only people, I lost my spot here. Oh yeah, just that we wanna make sure that we encourage the right kind of growth to happen in the right places, and that's why we're doing the general plan and looking at our land use planning and so forth. Um, but I'm looking at um, what I believe to be pretty accurate from my experience as a contractor uh, for 30 years in this community, um, what it costs to build here. And I believe the big, easiest thing to fix on the cost of building is our process and the holding costs. And I've said that over and over again, because I do believe that is the significant cost to build in California and especially along the coast. So when I look at 
I think it's performance on 18, slide 18, and the performa on one of the other pages. You're looking at profit, uh, developer profit, um, percent of cost, 5.2% if it's detached single family, 11% if it's uh, townhomes, 3.5% uh, if it's low income. Um, then 3.5% if it's uh, stacked flats. Um, developer profit, if it's moderate income, 5.2%, 9.8%, 3.3%. I look at that, and when we decided to create mortgages 100 years ago, we made housing an investment, <laughs> okay? An investment not unlike stocks or bonds or other things that people choose to invest their money in. Investments, the rate of return on an investment is usually in proportion to the risk that that investment has. So if you're looking at a 5.2% rate of return, then hopefully we're very, very low risk to build something in a city like Ventura. Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, what we're talking about later tonight is about pensions that we're paying a discount rate of 6.89% to the state for a very, very low risk um, investment that PERS makes on our pensions, okay? When I compare the two, <laughs> and I look at that sort of rate of return, I gotta ask the question, as somebody that's been in the trades for 30 years, why would anybody ever risk investing in the community and building for 5.2% rate of return? When you, the, the unknowns are so great, the unknowns of how long it's gonna to take to actually get completed, the unknowns of how somebody's gonna interpret the codes, the unknowns of how, what codes are gonna change before you get permission to build. So in reality, one final thing is that when we say that the housing being built today is unaffordable, of course it is. It's being built with today's dollars, with today's codes, with today's processes, Historically, the most affordable housing has always been our older housing stock, which we did not build enough of over the last 30 years. When we limited to 100 or 150 units per year to be built in the city for the last 20 or 30 years, we don't have that old housing stock, okay? And the old housing stock that we do have, we're encouraging people to not sell that because of our taxation system. So we're not freeing up uh, the old housing stock for the next generation. So we need to do things like inclusionary housing. So with that, I'm all in favor of an ordinance. I like what I'm seeing here, um, what's being proposed. I'm not sure, at first I thought everything would be in perpetuity, but then as I think about the cause and effect and unintended consequences, I think that whether it's for sale or actually for rent, in perpetuity is probably a bad idea. I think that what happens is, in for rent, for instance, you would get landlords that, or property owners, that may not want to invest the money it takes to keep that building up. And over a certain number of years, that building may be in need of significant repair. And at some point, somebody's gonna either go in and spend a lot of money to bring it up to what it needs to be for that time and age. Uh, or tear it down and build something new. But um, so far I'm liking what's being proposed by staff and that's where I'm leaning right now. Uh, but I very much support inclusionary housing. I'll leave it at that. Council member comments. 
So given the situation we have in Ventura, I think we started the evening with a comment from Councilmember McReynolds about a thousand people living in boats at the harbor. That's not for leisure. Those are people that don't have homes. There's so many unhoused people and so many people in my community at the threat any moment of losing their homes. They're working two or three jobs. Because of that, we have a, an epidemic in the west side of children committing suicide because they're without their parents. This housing ordinance is not going to help them. But if we can increase the rates to what was asked for by the faith community and Homes for All and many of our speakers tonight, then I'm inclined to support it because it, it probably won't happen again for another 10 years. So I'd like to, to move that we make those changes to 15% and, and take it as a moral obligation, not being afraid of a lawsuit. Is the motion clear? Is there a second? If, if it could be clear, I, I would like to have it clarified. So, so it would be staff's recommendation plus but changing it to include, um, perhaps you could explain, and whether the, it would include the, perpetuity. The 15% instead of 10 on the very low income in the rental, which was requested by Homes for All and our Continuum of Care and many speakers tonight, and the 55-year. If I can, can you pull that slide up, please? The Not for sale. To pull up staff's recommendation? Yes, please. Staff's recommendation is, is as follows. So, Councilmember Campos, you want to change? Um, not, no? the, not the for sale requirement, the, the for rent requirement. Okay, can I you pull up the rent requirement, please? So Councilmember Campos, staff's recommendation with the modification to the rental threshold to be 15% very low? That says 15%, 10% is low income and 5% is very low income. I would like to see 15% low income and 10% very low income. So for a total of 25%? Yes. Is there a if, second? If, if you want to leave it at 20, that's fine. We could leave the low income. No, uh, but very low income must come so up. So it dies for a lack of second? Okay, did my best. Okay, um, Mr. McReynolds. So I wanna say, you know, making housing uh, more expensive doesn't make it more affordable, you know, as a general premise, but at the same time, I think uh, Piper uh, 
Jackson Piper said it best, is we also need to do what's socially conscious. Uh, and so, so we do need to uh, absolutely implement an inclusionary housing ordinance. I believe that the reason that we're having this debate tonight is because the state took away redevelopment agencies uh, back in 08. And uh, the reason that we, they keep tweaking the state density bonus every year, because they don't have the guts to bring redevelopment back in some form, so they keep taking away local control so that they have that. Uh, that's my soapbox. Um, I would like to move forward with staff's uh, recommendation. Uh, with, I'd like to make a couple recommended changes, though. I would like to change perpetuity to 55 years for the rental. Uh, the reason is we are in a competitive market. Uh, we are competing regardless if Oxnard goes from 20 to 55. Camarillo doesn't have one. Uh, Simi Valley doesn't have one. Thousand Oaks is looking at what they're doing. We're competing against those agencies for those, the, the place those here. So I don't think we can put ourselves at a disadvantage in trying to get those uh, development dollars here in the city. Uh, I would like the ordinance to become effective on July 1 of uh, 2023 so that the folks that are in the system have three months to get to a deemed complete status, you know, via SB 330 or whatever that is. Um, I would like the in lieu fees to be a mix and match so that we can get uh, additional dollars uh, so that we can actually get some affordable housing uh, created uh, for it. Um, I would like a timeline when we revisit this so that if, if we do need deeper levels of affordability, um, I'm thinking I'm open to SAP's recommendation. I'm going to throw out five years. I am not married to that by any stretch of that imagination, but you know, that we need to come back with it. Um, and again, just kind of going back to our goals, if we can figure out some ways to do green incentives, like there's, a, there's an idea there where you could do rehab, uh, of you can, the developer could purchase existing housing stock, rehab it, put the covenants on it. That is absolutely the most green thing you can do is to reuse existing housing stock. Um, I don't have an idea, but if we, there were some green incentives, this is a great opportunity to come up with it. So uh, with that, that is my motion. I'll second that. There's a second. Um, Councilmember Johnson, I think you're up next. Thank you so much. Um, you know, as I, as I look at um, what we have from staff's proposed inclusionary housing program on slide seven and council member McReynolds's amendments to that, I have a few things to say. Um, I, I think it's important when we look at that for sale requirement, um, and, and I appreciate Mr. McReynolds pulling up the actual text of our ordinance for this. When you have 60 units or more, it says on the slide 60 units or more requires 15%. 60 units or more requires 15% low, or they could choose 20% low, or they could do 15% that is rotating. And so when we're looking at those 60 units or more, um, we're currently requiring 15% low. But staff's recommendation is to drop it to 10% moderate. And so I'm going to be proposing an amendment on that. I, I want to thank uh, Jackson Piper in particular for his comments. It's interesting to see uh, somebody from the YIMBY side of things supporting uh, some pretty steep 
inclusionary housing requirements. They, they have a reputation of um, just being in favor of market rate housing, but I think it gives us an idea of um, just how critical this issue, issue is for everybody. So with that, you know, considering the for sale requirement, considering that we saw Haley Point develop with 20% moderate, I, I, don't, I don't think 10% moderate is appropriate. Um, and, and for the rental, you know, I, I appreciate what Homes for All has said and SSTF on making it 15% very low. Um, currently, it's, it's 10%. The proposal is 10% low, 5% very low. I couldn't support going above 15% to 20 or 25%. And so uh, I am moving a, a, a substitute motion, essentially. It would be uh, Council Member McReynolds' motion with the following changes, that it include um, in the for sale requirement, that it include a choice, as we have now, of 15% low or 20% moderate. And in the rental units, uh, flipping the two numbers, so it would be 10% at very low and 5% at low. Does that make sense? And that would be my motion. Thank you. Second. There is a second. It was 10% uh, very low, 5% low on the rental. Um, Councilmember Halter. Great, thank you. A uh, question is um, the current ordinance, though, is 59 units or less and 60 units or more. We had two different inclusionary policies. The new one is seven units or more. So at seven units or more, if we make it 20% moderate income, then on the lower end projects, it could make it unfeasible and we may see a lot more of the type of buildings that a lot of people are having problems with going up right now. Uh, Councilmember Halter, as the current ordinance is drafted, there is no separation of the scale of the project. Yes, it would be seven units or more would pick between, based on Councilmember Johnson's motion, either 50% low or 20% moderate. Okay. The, the thing that I'm cautious of is making sure that we, we, we were presented a report that we're choosing to either say isn't applicable or maybe isn't thorough. Um, from my experience in the industry, I think it was very uh, thorough, and that's why I said at the beginning with it, it was a fantastic report. Um, I wish the numbers were different, but my fear is, is that we're going to uh, do, again, unintended consequence is make it so difficult that we're going to have to wait for the market um, to continue going up in order for people to continue developing and we're gonna be chasing our tail. That's what I'm afraid we're, gonna, we're about ready to do. I've, um, I've been on the sidelines for most of this. Um, here's where I'm coming from. First of all, we've done a lot of studies and our community has waited long enough. So I really wanna get something done tonight. I think we all do. I, I, I don't think that's a secret. Um, I'm struggling a bit, so we, we hired a consultant to, to give us best, their, their best mathematics and economics on it. 
And we've heard from legal counsel to say, if you significantly go outside their recommendations, he's recommending that we do a study so that we don't put ourselves at legal risk. I don't want to do another study. Um, I, I completely understand where you're coming from, Councilmember Johnson. That's where my heart wants to go. Um, and it's struggling right now um, with that organ in between my ears. So I, I'm probably going to lean towards Mr. McReynolds. But I would like one change in that, and that would be I hope we don't wait five years till we do another study. And so if you would consider something less than five years. Um, so anyways, that's kind of where I'm at on the, the amended motion of Councilmember Johnson that I, I, I favor the original motion more. Other comments? Then I'll call for a vote on the... Um, if, if I may, Mr. Mayor? Sure. Um, uh, given that we have a current uh, for sale requirement and this is, this is weakening it, um, and, and we haven't seen evidence that there, our current for sale requirements is a constraint to development. Would you um, support my motion were I to uh, back off on the rental switch? I'm still gonna go with respect with the, the original motion. Um, it's a tough decision. I know where my heart is, is going, but um, I just, um, we got the economic analysis, and um, I'd really like to, to go that direction. And we got the Planning Commission recommendation as well. And we just put in some new planning commissioners, and that's, I mean, they looked at this probably in some ways deeper than we did in multiple times, and their recommendation, I think, is more in line with the original motion. And if I may address that, please, Mr. Mayor. Sure. Um, we heard from Mark Abbey tonight, and he would have been the fourth vote to go deeper at the Planning Commission. And they did talk about this for a year. And they did go into so much more detail than we did in our one little meeting here. And so um, that's why I asked what the tie motion was. Um, I'd hate to see when we talk about unintended consequences, we hear from people about displacement. Their fears, we hear from Norma Ramirez and Myelin Villarreal and, and um, what is it, um, Ampara Ramirez about the displacement that they have to live with, the fear of losing your home. You've got kids. Where are they going to go? You know, who, who are we looking out for here? And, and so while the Planning Commission you know, this is what they agreed to finally. Um, you know, I also have to respect the planning commissioner that I appointed, Mark Abbey. He and I don't agree on everything. Um, one of the things I have always admired about Mark Abbey, and he has said this so many times, is that inclusionary means inclusionary. And I'm glad we have gotten to this point tonight. Um, I was there at those, you know, at the time it was the homelessness subcommittee. And we, they changed the name of it to the homelessness and affordable housing subcommittee in 2017. 
because we were working on the inclusionary housing ordinance. Oh, we got the Palmer fix. We're finally going to get this done. It has been five years. And I will tell you that I continue to believe that we are where we are in part because staff wanted to see a weak housing ordinance, not because of a financial analysis. I, I continue to be troubled by the fact that when this went to the Planning Commission in February and they asked for the math, that the math wasn't there. Given all that, um, I've made my point and I'd be happy to stop talking. Thank you, Mayor. Councilmember Halter. I appreciate everything Councilman Johnson just said, but I gotta, I gotta say that um, I, as most people who know me and know my involvement in this community in the last 38 years, is uh, I will do anything I can to help people who are struggling. Every time I see another family, whether they're friends or mine or somebody's kids moving out of state because they, they get priced out of the place that they were raised at, my heart breaks for them. I feel it's doing a disservice to the family, their families and it's doing a disservice for Ventura and for our community. And so for no way, shape or form, is this about a moral in, uh, initiative to whether or not we, uh, we help people who are barely putting a roof over their head or not. There's, there's more things we can do, things like our ADUs and JADUs and reversing a lot of the, the trends instead of fighting each other on you know, how ugly that five-story building is, maybe we encourage them to build a nicer five-story building that fits into a neighborhood better and more with what, in line with what our values are as a community. But in the same token, I heard at least three speakers talk about how we need to do this tonight and do exactly what uh, Councilman Johnson was saying. In the same vo voice, as they started putting down the, the housing that's going up. Well, you know, all this housing that's going up now is it's taken eight to 20 years to get this approved. None of that was approved in any of our tenure on this council. So I, hope, I would hope that we do something even better than what's happening. We need the housing. But uh, it's not about not caring about helping people who are barely getting by stay in their housing. For that, we could do a lot of other things to help make sure that we raise the salaries in our community so that people can afford to be here, that we could bring the jobs back to our community so we stop being a bedroom community and having people drive to Santa Barbara and elsewhere for jobs. We could, um, we, <laughs> you know, we could allow things like ADUs and JDUs. We can, there's a numerous things we can do, but if we want to cut off the, the, the funnel of people willing to invest millions of dollars to build the housing that we desperately need, if we want to do that, then, you know, it's a risk. We are, building, period, in California is a risk already. We want to make it even more so, then I, more power to us, but, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of us would be priced out of our state if we keep going the direction that we've been going for the last 40 or 50 years, we absolutely destroyed the, the balance of housing that naturally should have occurred in the state that didn't occur because of people saying no to everything. Thanks. So I'm gonna go to the deputy mayor and then I'd like to take a vote so that we get out of here at a reasonable time and we've got an agenda still to get through. I know this issue is really important, but. Yeah, thank you. Um, and rather than make a third motion. <laughs> I wanted to ask Councilmember uh, Johnson just for clarification in regards to the rental aspect of it. 
are you then changing your recommendation for the rentals to, to something different than what you originally mentioned? If, if uh, that would gain your support, I would be willing to do that if the seconder of the motion would be willing to do that. And keeping the keeping um, for sale at 15 or 20% moderate? 15, yeah, the, the, okay. they could have the choice of 15% low or 20% moderate. Okay, thank you. Yes, so is the seconder of the motion okay with that? Okay, so so it would it would be Mr. McReynolds's uh, motion with the housing being the 15% low or 20% moderate. Thank you. And, and to clarify that, then the rental, you want to go 5% very low and 10% low? Council, uh, Deputy Mayor Sanchez Palacios, I really want your support on this motion. What were you thinking on the rental? Going back to, um, the, I guess, the original. The staff recommendation? Staff recommendation. Okay. I, yeah, I would be willing to give up a change in the rental. Okay. And your second was okay with that? Second's okay with that. Okay, is everybody clear on the amended motion? I would, I would like to make a comment, if I may. I don't know if you're using this. Um, I appreciate the conversation. Um, we talked tonight about being bold. We have in front of us a recommendation that is clearly very conservative. And to, are we still live? We are. I just pulled the language up to clarify okay. once you're done with your Thanks. comments. Um, Member Johnson. And as a council that is trying to be bold in addressing the housing issue, we are taking a very conservative and cautious approach that is going to make life very difficult for a lot of our residents. And so I hope my colleagues think of that as they make their vote. Um, Mr. City Clerk, let's take a vote. Uh, On the amended I motion. Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, on your comment specifically, I don't know if the if Councilmember Johnson has a different than the five year. Oh, I think five year sounds great. I'd be, you know, I, I would assume as well that five years would be a requirement, but that if if things change, that the council would be able to do that sooner. And I think especially if it were constrained to development, and we were hearing about that. I, I can't, I would hope the council would not wait five years. I have seen what happened in San Francisco when, you know, they had a 12%, 12.5% inclusionary housing ordinance, and they doubled it to 25. And you know what happened? Nobody built, and no affordable units got built. Um, we are seeing throughout the state of California, we are seeing cities that are coming up with really high percentages for their inclusionary housing ordinances. And they're not doing it because they want affordable housing. They're doing it because they don't want any housing at all. And that is why I, in particular, um, appreciated hearing from Mr. Piper of uh, Ventura County, Yumby. Uh, I went off on a rant there. But I, <laughs> yes, five years, but I'm sure we would, we would come back and, and revisit that as needed. Okay. I think we're ready to take a vote since... Mr. Mayor, just for a point of uh, clarity, just to make sure we're voting on uh, Councilmember Johnson's proposal. Absolutely. That's we're right, voting yes. on the amended motion. Yeah, so the substitute motion is first, and that motion captures the, uh, the edits here on the screen with the addition of Councilmember Johnson's 15% low or 20% moderate for ownership projects. 
on the substitute motion, go ahead and. Oh, one second. Can you just clarify one thing? The, the motion says perpetuity at 55 years. I think it would, the affordability would be 55 years instead of perpetuity, instead of in perpetuity. Better? Perfect. Okay, on the substitute motion, go ahead and enter your vote. Okay, all votes have been entered. Okay, we have uh, four no's and the motion fails. So back to the original motion of Mr. McReynolds. That's right. So we go back to the original motion. I'm going to remove this language here. Just to be clear, does this accurately reflect the original motion? The addition of the affordability at 55 years, effective July 1, 2023, in lieu fees to be a mix and match, timeline to revisit the ordinance, five years, and to add green incentives. Sorry, Councilmember McReynolds, can I ask a clarifying question? Adding green incentives, are you expecting something to be developed and put into the ordinance itself? Just that we look at it if there's ways to come up with, as I mentioned, uh, one of the options in the ordinance is uh, rehabilitation, acquiring a unit, rehabilitating. Obviously, that's the greenest, you know, if that's. So, the in the incentives programs we develop for this, yeah. that we, okay, yeah. thank you. Just and I think clarifying. One item that was missing was that the effective date would be July 1. That was included. Oh, it was. I, didn't, yeah. I just didn't hear it. And then uh, I'm not married to the five years. I mean, if somebody has an alternative, you know. Staff is comfortable with five years. Okay. If my thought counts. I would like it sooner than five. 36. I want to force the issue to us to take a look. So in yeah. three years, if we're building left and right, then I want to go back to what the amendment looked at, and I want to be able to do that sooner versus later. I, I, know, I know staff thinks that we need five years to do that, uh, and that might be the case, but I want, uh, I want to force us to take a look in three years. I'm, I'm okay with that, 36 months or three years. Okay, perfect. So with the adjustment of the timeline to revisit the ordinance in three years, then on the original motion, Go ahead and enter your vote now. Okay, still waiting on two votes. Okay, all votes have been entered. Seven ayes, and the motion carries. Thank you, staff, and thank you, city council, and thank you, community, for the feedback. Okay, now we go to item 16, the Mills Act contracts for historical landmarks. And if I may, Mr. Mayor, per our protocols, we will need a motion to hear a new item beyond 10 p.m. Okay. I'll Accept a motion to hear a new item after 10 o'clock. Second. I'll second. All those in favor? You want to take a. Go ahead and enter your vote now to hear a new item beyond 10 p.m. 
All votes have been entered. Seven ayes and the motion carries. Thank you. Let's see if we can quickly go through the next item and get to the pension issue. I don't think we're going to get to CIP tonight. Um, I, so, Mills, Netta, you're up again. Staff has no presentation. We just have staff's recommendation as included in the staff report packet. Do I have questions or a motion from city council? I'll move to approve staff's rec recommendations. I second. Questions? Let's vote, Mr. City Clerk. Sure. Before we go to a vote, is there any public comment? Thank you very much for that. Okay, seeing none <laughs> on the motion to approve staff recommendation. Go ahead and enter your vote. All votes have been entered. Seven ayes, and the motion carries. So do I need, I don't need, a, do I need another motion to take another agenda item? Yes. Yeah, we would need an additional motion to, uh, to hear another new item. So moved. Do I have a second? Second. Let's take a vote. Okay, to hear a new item. All votes have been entered. Seven ayes and the motion carries. Mr. Morley, nothing like pension accounting and mathematics at 1025. There's a high standard here to keep us entertained. Mr. Mayor, we love pension accounting and mathematics any time of the day. Thank you so much for that feedback. Let's get at it then. Yes, sir. Honorable Mayor, Deputy Mayor, members of the City Council, for the last seven years, maybe even more since, since 2014, there's been a, a crisis in the state of California with regard to rising pension costs associated with the CalPERS system. Uh, in uh, 2015 and 2016, uh, agencies started becoming aware of some of the options that we had available to control pension costs. In 2017, the city of Ventura for the first time implemented a process where we pay our unfunded liability costs up front every year, which right now, by following that process, we save about $480,000 to $500,000 a year in pension costs. Uh, in 2022, the city council passed a goal. Um, it was goal number three uh, that was to create a long-term substantial or sustainable fiscal policy. Uh, in 2023, when we adopted the budget, we had a budget principle number one that called for long-term financial sustainability, monitoring and reporting on changes in pension liability and including those in our annual budget process. Uh, in October of 2022, uh, the City Council adopted 
for the first time, one of a policy that addressed these issues that we've been dealing with for the past eight years. And that policy was, uh, it was changed to APMP number 14.7, and it created a policy there for us to monitor and, and uh, maintain fund balance levels, at the same time addressing pension costs, CIP costs, future city council initiatives, uh, and debt. Um, uh, one of the things that we're that we've always wanted to do by doing by controlling these pension costs is to create for ourselves the uh, budgetary flexibility to address future needs that we have. For example, the budget our, we can change our budgetary flexibility in the immediate five years to address things like. Um, uh, Providing the city council with the with the uh, flexibility to add new initiatives to the budgetary process for the next five years to include finding ways to budget for city council new city council goals. Another thing that we're providing budgetary flexibility on is the ability to uh, look forward to increasing personnel costs for city staff and accommodate. Uh, new changes in city staff. For example, the city was fortunate enough recently to be awarded by FEMA a, a SAFER grant, Staffing for Adequate Fire and Emergency Response. It's a three-year grant, uh, $7.6 million, and, um, and coming with that is the, is the requirement for the city to meet certain uh, ancillary costs to that grant that would be borne by the city. Um, I have with me our financial services manager, Pam Townsend. She's gonna talk about 10, 15 minutes of doing a presentation to talk about an overview of what CalPERS is and what kind of requirements we've had with regard to making CalPERS payments. It's something that she's gonna spend about 15 years on. It's something that Pam and I have spent six years learning and we're still learning. Thank you, Greg, Mr. Morley. Um, good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and members of the City Council. My name is Pam Townsend. I'm your Financial Services Manager, and I'm very excited to talk to you tonight about pensions. So let's dive on in. We are gonna cover a lot of ground, so please let me know if anything, um, if anything strikes you as um, needing more clarification. So a little bit of basics. Um, here at the City, uh, our plan administrator for our pension system is CalPERS. That's the California Public Employees Retirement System. Eligible city employees participate in one of the city's two defined benefit plans, either safety or miscellaneous, each with varying benefit formula levels depending on hire date. Safety would refer to any sworn police or fire, and miscellaneous would be essentially everybody else. And CalPERS is the nation's largest public pension fund. It was established in 1932. It has over 2 million members. They administer plans to over 2,892 employers, including 1,556 public agencies, just like the city of Ventura. So the basic pension formula is very simple, and it goes as follows. Contributions, meaning contributions that I pay as an employee, plus any contributions that my employer pays, plus any investment earnings that those contributions make in the market equal 
the benefits that are to be paid out, and any expenses that CalPERS incurs to deliver those benefits. It's a very, very simple formula, but as we go along, we're gonna see how other factors will impact this formula. But the basic takeaway from this is that when expected costs of benefits increase or when our investment earnings don't meet our expected rate of return, this formula is now out of balance and an unfunded liability is created. This is uh, just a fun little graphic from CalPERS. Uh, this shows that for every dollar they pay out, 56 cents of that dollar comes from investment earnings, 32 cents comes from CalPERS employers, like the city of Ventura, and 12% comes from members just like the employees. So the basic funding flows. When the city of Ventura pays CalPERS, we're actually paying for two different components of our pension obligations. The first is the normal cost. This is our regular, ongoing, based off of payroll cost of our retirement. So when payroll runs, I as an employee pay a portion of my salary towards retirement. The city of Ventura pays a portion on my behalf. And those costs are shared by the employee and the employer. Then there's what's called the unfunded accrued liability. We're gonna talk about how this gets created, but for now, just think of it as a large unfunded amount that's amortized as long-term debt. The city pays interest on this long-term debt at a rate called the discount rate. And the employer, most importantly, pays 100% of this unfunded amount. So the normal cost and the unfunded amount, they go over to our plan administrator, CalPERS, CalPERS takes those contributions, they administer the plan, they pay out benefits, and they invest that for a target return also known as the discount rate. Now I'm gonna pause right there because I have now mentioned discount rate twice. Discount rate is both the expected rate of return on our plan's assets, and it's also the rate at which our UAL is going to accrue interest. It's currently at 6.8%, down from 7%, and we're gonna go into a little more detail as to how that happened. And then CalPERS pays the benefits to our retirees. So here's a quick snapshot of where the city of Ventura currently stands. Um, this was as of our valuation report for fiscal year ending June 30, 2021. Uh, the columns you can see our miscellaneous plan and our safety plan. We have total members. This is both active and retirees. There's our total accrued liability, which is essentially the total amount of benefits that, we, that CalPERS thinks we're going to need to pay out. There's our current market value of assets. So if you were thinking of that formula of contributions plus investment earnings, the market value of assets is the first part of that formula. And the total accrued liability is the second part of that formula. It's the expenses plus benefits. The difference between the two is what's known as the unfunded liability. You can see it's $137.4 million for safety, $52.8 million for miscellaneous for a total of $190.2 million. Now, generally, when folks talk about the fiscal health of a pension plan, a lot of emphasis is put on the funded ratio, which is essentially just the market value of assets over the total accrued liability. The funded ratio for the safety plan is 69.6%, and miscellaneous is 84.2%. Um, and this is all based off of the valuation report for June 30, 2021. I do want to point out that that is our most recent valuation report. It takes CalPERS a lot of time to put these valuation reports together. So that report for 6-30-2021, we receive in July of 2022, which is already in the middle of our fiscal year 23. 
So the valuation report ending June 30, 2021 actually feeds our budget for FY24. So let's take a look at our funded ratios over the years. This graph, you can see this is valuation end dates um, down at the bottom. Uh, we have the safety plan at the bottom and the miscellaneous plan on top. And you can see that from 2017 to 2020, they were kind of cruising along at a pretty consistent funded rate. But then in fiscal year 21, something crazy happened. Uh, CalPERS saw returns of 21.3%, which is 14.5% over the expected discount rate of 6.8%. And as such, we saw a large increase in our funded rates. So we got very excited about this, but we can't stay excited about this because while we know that this happened, we've also been in contact with CalPERS and we are expecting that in 2022, we will see a negative return of 7.5%. That is a change in 14.3% over the 6.8% discount rate, right? 6.8 minus 7, negative 7.5. This is what we think is going to happen in 2022 and 2023's valuation report based off of a negative 7.5% return in 22 and a negative 1% return estimated in 2023. So how did we get here? A couple things. The largest is investment losses. Uh, anytime market yields lower than, expected, lower than expected rates of return, unfunded liabilities are created. Remember that very simple formula that we're going to keep going back to. If we don't uh, make the, if we don't come up with the expected rate of return, then we have an imbalance in our formula. CalPERS is always looking at their rates of return and evaluating whether or not they think the rate that they've come up with, the discount rate, is in fact a true and real estimate of what they think they're going to see over the long term. And they're not evaluating this over one, two, five, ten years. This is long, this is a decade-wide analysis over what they think they're going to receive and pay out in the long term. Now, when they think that the expected rate of return uh, is actually going to be lower than they originally anticipated, they will make changes in the discount rate. They will lower the discount rate. They will lower the expected rate of return that they expect to receive over years. The other thing that happened is enhanced benefits. So come back in time with me to the late 90s and early 2000s, when if you can believe it, pension plans were actually very well funded, most over 100%, some as much as 150%, and CalPERS and many pension plans we're looking around and saying, hey, we can probably give some additional benefits to our members. Um, and so in some instances, they did. That, of course, affects the second part of our formula, the benefits, versus, uh, benefits plus expenditures. The other thing is demographics. CalPERS has been in existence for 91 years. And over those 91 years, people have started to live longer. And as people continue to live longer, we will have to pay them out for more years after retirement. Also, the age at which people retirement. These demographics affect the amount of money that we're going to pay out in the long term. So what's CalPERS doing about it? Well, we said that they are always investigating or always uh, taking a look at the discount rate to make sure that it is what they expect it to be. And they determined that they really needed to institute what they called a risk mitigation strategy where they said in years where investment performance outperforms the discount rate, they're going to lower the discount rate because they believed it was too high. The intent of this was to lower investment volatility over time. 
And what they did is they came up with this table. Um, essentially what it says is, if the, investment rate, if the investment returns exceed the discount rate by these percentages, then the discount rate will be reduced by these basis points, and the resulting discount rate will be this. Recall, in FY21, investment returns were 21.3%, which triggered a 20 basis points reduction in the discount rate, which brought us from 7% down to 6.8%. So we've talked a lot about returns, CalPERS returns over the years. So let's take a look at them. Uh, down at the bottom, you're looking at uh, valuation end date years. Uh, and that green line in the middle is zero. And here are, here are CalPERS rates of returns over the years. And it's a little jarring. Um, but that's to be expected. Um, markets are naturally volatile. And now that we have the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we can look at it and say, there are actually some pretty usual suspects in here, right? Like this here, right in, 20, in 2001, that's your dot-com boom. This in 09, that's the housing short. Um, so the markets are predictable, <laughs> but they're volatile. Um, the other thing that I really want to point out when we have significant losses um, in a given year and then a significant gain, like let's look at 2009. If you have a drastic, drastic decrease and then a drastic, drastic increase, you're not back to where you started from. For example, you start off with $100, you lose half of that $100, you're at $50. You gain 50% next year, you're not at $100, you're at $75. So just keep that in your mind when you look at really volatile markets like these. This line that I've just popped in there, that's the discount rate. And you can see that when it's, when it's mirrored against the rates of return over many years, it doesn't look like that drastic of a decrease. Uh, back here in 1996, we were looking at a discount rate of 8.5%. It was 8.25% in, in 1997. And over here in 2021, we're at 6.8. So it looks, when you're looking at so many years, it almost looks flat. But that very small decrease in the discount rate has very real implications for the city. Um, this color coding just goes to show you that anytime we have drastic decreases um, well below the discount rate, sometimes unfunded liabilities are created. So how did we get here? Well, the good news is we're seeing this trend across all of CalPERS. CalPERS has 2,892 employers. This is, this is not something that is just affecting the city of Ventura. Furthermore, it's not something that's just affecting CalPERS. This is a problem nationwide. And most importantly, this was not created overnight. This is not going to be solved overnight. This has been a problem that has been brewing for many years, and there were a lot of things that contributed to it. But the biggest takeaway is that unfunded liability is a dynamic number, and managing the cost of those obligations is going to require constant evaluation and flexible long-term funding strategies. So why do we care? A couple things. Unfunded liabilities are the sole responsibility of the city. Remember, our employees are not picking up the tab for this. The city is on the hook for paying our unfunded liability. The other thing is the larger our unfunded liability, the more vulnerable we are to any volatile market swings. By reducing our unfunded liability, we improve the financial health of the city. Uh, just for a little bit of context, 
Uh, every year, the state auditor releases the Fiscal Health of California Cities report, and in FY21, Ventura ranked 152nd worst out of 431, meaning that 279 cities were better than us. Uh, but when we really looked at what put us into the red and what put us at high risk, it was pension obligations, pension funding, and future pension costs uh, that put us in that position. But perhaps most importantly is that it's costly to have large unfunded liabilities. Remember, CalPERS is charging us interest on that unfunded liability, 6.8%, 6.8% on $190.2 million. So what are we doing about it? Couple things. Uh, we talked earlier about paying the annual unfunded liability up front. CalPERS does allow us the option to pay in installments every single month. Of course, they will charge us interest for it. Um, but by paying our annual um, unfunded liability um, up front each year, we save a couple hundred thousand dollars. The other thing that we're doing is council revised the city policy in October of 22 to try to uh, address some of these pension obligations. And what they did was we established a target of available unassigned fund balance and said that that target should be no more than a specified percentage of the prior year's operating expenditures. So what does that mean? Picture this table. The policy says if either of our uh, pension plans is below 75%, which it is because our safety plan is at 69.6% funded, our target balance of unassigned fund balance, this is unassigned fund balance, this is not committed fund balance, this is not assigned, this is unassigned fund balance, should be no more than 13% of the prior year's operating expenditures. So for easy math, if last year our annual operating expenditures were $100, $100 million, our target unassigned fund balance should be no more than $13 million, and every amount over, any penny over that should be split as follows. 90% of it should go to pensions, and 10% of it should go to CIP. Uh, based off of uh, fiscal year ending 22, we are expecting that uh, we will be over that target balance by $11.7 million, and 90% of that, $10,564,000, should go to pensions. So moving forward, we plan to continue to make the annual upfront liability, annual upfront payment upfront. Um, and the other thing we want to do is we want to take that $10.564 million and we want to make an additional discretionary payment to CalPERS. This is a one-time discretionary payment to CalPERS in order to pay off a portion of our unfunded liability. We wanted to give you a little bit of context to help you visualize what that could mean. So this is the five-year forecast that we showed you the last time we were at Council. Um, again, we have, not yet updated, we have not yet updated this for the proposed budget. Um, we will be coming back to you in the next few weeks and months um, to give you a proposed budget, but just for illustrative pur purposes, this was the last five-year forecast that we showed you. We think if we make this $10.5 million payment, it will reduce our pension obligations in the next few years as follows. We think it'll save about $2.2 million in the first year, and it will create this cushion underneath to do things like pay for certain council initiatives um, and other important priorities that, um, that we think is necessary. So 
The recommendations would be to receive this report regarding the status of the City of San Buenaventura with the California Public Employee Retirement System and to authorize the finance, finance department to adjust appropriations as necessary to make that additional discretionary payment. Nice job. That was fairly entertaining for this time of night and this subject. So questions from City Council. Councilmember Halter. Okay, great. Um, I'm on FAB, so you answered most of my questions, but I, uh, let's see, questions I have is, um, we have 190.2 million unfunded, but I think in that report, the auditor in the CAFRS was like a lot less than that, like 138 million. Why is that such a difference in what's considered unfunded? And this. This number, this 190.2 million, million dollars is based on a valuation report that was as of June 30th of 2021. Okay. The, the last audit in CAFR that we did was as of June 30th of 2022. So the difference is the valuation report shows us a picture of what it looked like 12 months prior to when the audit was done and when the actual booking of some of those expenses were made. That's why you see a difference between those okay. two reports. And then uh, that $10.5 million, $10 million, is that sitting in a reserve account right now, earning interest? Is that what we do with the money, just out of curiosity? The, the money on our balance sheet is sitting in an, it's in an unassigned reserve account okay. on our balance sheet. The cash is in investments. The cash is? The, the cash is sitting in a, the cash is sitting in an, uh, a general cash account. It's not in investments. Oh, okay. So, so it's not earning interest. Well, all of our cash is earning interest. About two hundred eighty-two million dollars worth of cash okay. that's out there earning interest, and this is part of it. But it's available to us to make this expenditure. Okay. Okay. Great. That's my questions for now. Thanks, Councilmember McReynolds. Uh, could you pull up slide five? All of this. Which one was five? So we currently have an un unfunded liability of $190 million. So regardless if we pay this $10 million or not, that number will increase next year. That's correct. So again, if you could go to slide 12, I'm sorry uh, for jumping you around. And I know I brought this up at the FAB, and my concern is that this chart is missing the funding you know, balance. So we have this $12 million fund balance. Because it's 12, it, it doesn't matter how much it is, 80% <coughs> of it is gonna go to pensions. Uh, I understand that that's a prudent, a prudent, prudent fiscal policy, but I don't think when the council adopted this policy in October of 2022, that they were thinking that there was gonna be $12 million of unfunded unassigned pension or uh, uh, funds available. Sorry, it's getting late uh, on it. So again, I, I would like to just see that, you know, the, the policy revisited and a, a sixth column added based on fund balance, you know, and if, you know, almost flipping it so that if we have up to two and a half million dollars, 90% goes to pensions, 10% goes, you know, 5 million, 70, you know, and, and up. Uh, I think that be a more prudent use of our funds because it's so rare that we ever have an opportunity where we have unassigned 
fund balance that we can reinvest in CIP, economic development, any other number of uh, uh, programs that this council could come up with. Uh, so my recommendation would be that we revisit the policy. Uh, I understand that there's implications. Uh, you're looking to, it, all the math changes if we don't make this payment tomorrow, I'm guessing, uh, by the, which is the end of the month. Yes, the, the math changes. The longer you may yeah. take to make the payment, the, yeah. the math It'll changes. All change. But I, I think it's just an opportunity here where we so rarely have an opportunity to have unassigned, unrestricted funds to, to dedicate to some program. Be it, you know, I, I would do something economic development, but I'd be open to my colleagues in terms of what other ideas they have. So that, that's my comment. And if, I'm, if I may, when the, when the policy was adopted in, in October of 2022, the amount of unassigned fund balance was, was well known. And in fact, it's more than $10.2 million. This, 10 point, this, 11, this $12 million that we're talking right now, that's the overage. That's the amount that's over what our target fund balance is. There's $27 million in unassigned fund balance. This $10.2 million, this $10 million that we want to pay to CalPERS and the other $1.2 million that we want to put into the CIP program is just the amount that's over the target. And that's been accumulating ever since back in 2013 when I said we first started talking about these problems that we had with CalPERS. And we've been waiting this long for the city council to finally make the decision that we made in October to implement these policies that are going to provide us with long-term financial sustainability and paying down this unfunded fund balance this this unfunded liability is one of the things that leads us to and staying committed to that long-term financial sustainability the other 15.5 million dollars is in unassigned fund balance is still available for the city council to make changes to the policy in the future to, to make available for your use but that's the same million is part of generally accepted accounting principles to hold in reserve in the event of a disaster or? Uh, actually, or actually, actually, no. The, we have this other committed fund, fund balance that's, what, 20 million? It's a little bit more than $20 million. And that's the committed fund balance that the Government Finance Officers of Association of America suggests as a best practice we should have in reserve for economic unforeseeable events so this other money is in addition to that and the target in my opinion is a little bit too high if we stay committed to these policies to remain financially sustainable in the future as we make these payments like this to CalPERS and lower that unfunded liability we're we're not we're not only creating this budgetary flexibility in immediate five years we're creating that financial sustainability in the future for those events where there may be other economic issues that affect our revenues. Thank you. Um, okay. Councilmember Johnson. Mayor, I move that we continue the meeting past 11 o'clock. Do I have a second? Second. Let's take a vote. Okay, to continue the meeting beyond 11, go ahead and enter your vote. Okay, all votes have been entered. 
Seven ayes, and the motion carries. Thank you, Councilmember Johnson. Thank you. If I could just make a couple comments on this. Um, you know, I really appreciate the FAB meeting, especially the prior FAB subcommittee that did all the, did a lot of hard work on this. Uh, I, I feel really good about it. Um, y you know, when you look at where we are with specifically with pensions and where we rank in the state, um, we have not been doing a good job. We are way below the median. Um, and, and it does pose a long-term threat to our stability and our ability to pay for things. I, and I will say this, and, and, I, and I know that if Jim Friedman is listening, he will have a heart attack. But I think, I think it's possible sometimes for a city to have too much spending money. I think sometimes we have money that just is burning a hole in our pocket, and it gets us into trouble. Um, sometimes, sometimes we're too quick to, to add, especially let's say expensive positions and without really taking into account what that's going to do in particular to our pension costs. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that we're doing this and I thank my colleagues for, for taking a very financially prudent step. Thank you, Mayor. Mr. Duran, were you on the list? Somehow it got wiped clean here. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for that clarification. I am I am a lot more excited than uh, than I was when I walked in. I'll tell you because um, I, I was concerned that you know what if a, a catastrophe hit and you know and here we have these funds. But you just said we have like 20 million if something like that happens. If we have another, another Thomas fire or a, or a we actually, actually after this 10 million we have 35 million. Okay, so. So then we so we have extra we we have extra money that you said is available to us. I th I think within the next few weeks we could talk about revising that policy again and change some of these targets that we talked about earlier yes. and make more money available for future budgetary purposes for uh, new city council initiatives to include new adopted goals and other initiatives that might be out there. I think that's wonderful. Thank you. A question where, so when we talked about, and I think it was back like in 05 and 06, and CalPERS was running around the state saying, we'll never run out of money. Uh, now's a good time to improve the pensions um, for, for the employees. I'm, I'm being a little cynical, but that, I know that did happen. At that time, was this city at 100% on their funding ratio? Uh, Pam, do you have that? I don't know that information off the top of my head. No, I, I don't know the answer to that. I can certainly find out for you. But. So your suspicions are that we weren't? Mm, my suspicions are that we were not. Yeah. So my point is, I, um, I really I understand where Councilmember McReynolds is coming because there's a lot of meat and potato things that we all want done, right? We, we want sidewalks fixed. We want more sidewalks fixed. We want our roads fixed faster. There's, and, and I get that. It's just I'm tired of us kicking the financial can down the street on, on pensions. And um, I know uh, that it's not a sexy thing to do, but I think it's the right thing to do um, financially. I know in corporate America, you, uh, they don't let you get away with being in the 60 percentile for your funding. Uh, not for very long anyways, because um, I've run corporations 
and I can remember when we went under 90% and getting written up for it, and you had to make, you had to write the big check. So um, I, I just think this is the right step, and I think it it sends the right message to not only this city council, but city councils in the future. Any other? So for some reason, uh, Mr. City Clerk, I, I guess is it after 11 o'clock my queue doesn't work? Is that something that you were working on over there? That's or right. was that Tracy doing that? That's Tracy. Okay. So I'm sorry, so, Councilmember Johnson. Mayor, I, I believe we need to make a motion here. Um, we have staff's recommendation on slide 15. I would move staff's recommendation to receive this report and authorize the finance department to adjust appropriations as necessary. I'll second. Oh, we need to go public comment before. So I, I'm sorry. I, I feel really good that for once I'm correcting you on uh, the right order. I've made my night tonight. So public comments, please. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. No public speakers on item number 17. Okay, would you like to make a motion? No. <laughs> Who would like to make the motion I'll then? make the motion. So moved. Is second. there a second? Second. Any other discussion? Let's take the vote, please. Okay, on item number 17 to move the staff recommendation. Go ahead and enter your vote now, please. Okay, all votes have been entered. We've got seven ayes and the motion carries. So if it's all right with um, the rest of us, we'll take um, the study session on CIP and move that to the next city council meeting. Are we okay with that, gang? Okay. Councilmember Compost, we're good with that? Okay. Um, Public communications, are there any other? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have two speakers for public communications. Our, uh, excuse me, three speakers. Our first speaker is gonna be Glenn Overly, followed by Spencer Noren. Glenn, go ahead and unmute yourself. Michael, can you hear me? We can, yes. At the February 13, 2023 council meeting, Council members discuss limiting public speaking times to expedite meetings. As you may recall, that particular Monday had multiple speakers who discussed pickleball, a fiddle traffic accident, ocean, Spanish interpreters, and miscellaneous other projects, all important to the public. Last year, Mayor Rubacava had a short time frame where she limited citizen time frames that were between 90 seconds and two minutes. Many residents were upset and complained. Toward the end of her term, the standard was reset to three minutes per speaker. What is the court's position of public input timeframes at public meetings? The second appellate court under the case name Rybakov versus Long Beach et al. has clearly established the reasonable time as three minutes for public speaker. The court stated, these opinions properly strike a balance between the public's need to address their elected officials while also allowing the public to entity to manage meetings and complete them in a reasonable, efficient manner. Please keep in mind, citizens elect public officials to conduct business on their behalf. 
but do not give up their rights to be critical of government processes at public meetings. Let me share some of the positive effects of citizen input with this council over the last year or so. It was citizens that identified the Brown Act violations before the DA's office was notified. It was citizens that identified the out-of-policy CalCard expenditures, including the multiple purchases of alcohol. It was citizens that pointed out the filet mignon meal at the Paso Robles executive retreat during a time that our city was shut down due to COVID. It was citizens that got the ball rolling with the audit related to the above activities. And it was citizens that shed light on the inappropriate removal of an extremely qualified planning commissioner who was also a retired military veteran. Now, some council members have floated the idea that limiting citizen input would make meetings more efficient. I only wish those council members would have run an election campaign where they clearly stated that they wanted to limit or eliminate citizen input. The outcome of the recent elections may have been quite different. As noted by the appellate court, three minutes appears to be a balance for citizen input and efficiency concerns for the length of public meetings. Perhaps council could limit the number of consent items and formal items on each meeting at the beginning of the month to provide true citizen input as the law allows. I see limiting citizen input as encouraging potential lawsuits related to balance described by the appellate court in Rebekoff versus Long Beach. Thank you. Our next speaker is Spencer Noren. Give me one second to move you over, Spencer. And then Spencer Noren will be followed by Trevor Gotsman. Spencer, you should be able to unmute yourself. Thank you, Michael. See you guys on the camera here today. Let's see it too. All right, good, let's go. Okay, I want to start off by saying thank you again for this long meeting today, uh, being at five hours. And it also kind of reiterates what Mr. Overlay was saying. Waiting five hours for the public to speak openly, I believe is too long. I believe council can look into a hybrid way of maybe offering 60 seconds at the beginning of each meeting. And then if you want to hold public comment to the very end, then you can do that. But there's no way anybody's going to wait five hours to make public comment other maybe than me and Glenn and of course, Mr. Godsman. But on that note, please think about that. And it was just also a few years ago that we voted to take it from two meetings a month to three meetings a month. So I think that's something also that staff should consider. If we keep talking about how tired we are at each meeting and how we're not making coherent decisions, why not think about going back to three meetings, shorten our meetings, and then at that same time, respecting staff. I want to give staff a shout out for the capital improvement team that just waited five hours, also prepping the last maybe day or week to be ready for a council meeting tonight to be bumped again as the finance team was last week or last council meeting as well. So please see that from a staff point of view and respect their time to when we do bump them, um, it takes that, that, that difference. I think we can get it done if we go to three meetings per month. Number two, uh, on the fairgrounds conversation, thank you for the CEO, Stacy, for being here this evening. I was hoping for more of an update. I was hoping we got the yes on the X Games coming to the uh, fairgrounds in the city of Ventura. I'm very excited about that. But I also want to say big shout out and respect to the Ventura Raceway. We saw what happened in the last few weeks as the attention was drawing about bringing the upgrade to the raceway. 
Council Member Johnson, I'm glad you're going to the raceway for the very first time coming up in a few weeks. I look forward to joining you with the sprint cars. Number three, coming to the mayor here. Mayor, shout out to your alma mater, uh, St. Pius, St. Matthias, for winning the CIF championship. I had fun seeing you at the Buena High School semifinal basketball game. Mayor, I wanted to remind you that tomorrow night, the Buena Bulldogs play in the state championship round one. So you can come and re cheer on the Bulldogs tomorrow night, seven o'clock at home in the first round of the state championship uh, starting for CIF. And number four, if we can maybe leave this memory, this meeting in honor of a man, Joseph Foster, a great community member, passed away in the last few weeks, um, a coach, a county employee, and a mentor and a great man um, that we lost in our community, Mr. Joseph Foster. Thank you so much for your time. And our final speaker this evening is Trevor Gotsman. Trevor, you should be able to unmute yourself. Good evening, everybody. My uh, um, city council, public community, everybody who is still present after five hours, forgive me for butting in, but I had to commend you on wonderful, wonderful council meeting. I was tempted to speak on the historic preservation. Um, you know, I live in an historic house, but you had the speakers at this other, with the homeless and the housing, the need. We as the community, I come from a perspective from a little different from Spencer. My father loved the racing and did the things. We need to remember where we come from, the, the barefoot. Listen to the kids. This is, we're stewarding this land for them. So. I commend you on the bravery of changing what needs to be changed and what we've got and use us community members. Each of us needs to be present. Each of us needs to make that effort. That complacency is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. So picking up and um, paying that liability, you know, the perfect graph showing you how things, just paying it off, picking it up, putting it away, hanging it up. I'm the biggest culprit. So keep me in check as well, please. And I remind everybody, and this is how we do it, uh, Spencer. This is how we do it, everybody. We just do it because we take the responsibility and we show it and we share it and have the courage to be who we are meant to be. And the support of the community, the twining of these loose threads, the twine, the threads that bind us, we have to keep waxing them. We have to keep ourselves present. And tonight is proof. What has happened tonight at this meeting, everybody, the council members, I commend you all, congratulations, thank you for, and everybody who is present, everybody who presented, thank you. Good night, everybody. Let's keep working. And Mr. Mayor, that will conclude public comments under the public communications. Any follow-up from the city manager on that? So we are adjourning tonight, and I'm sorry in the honor of... In honor of Barbara Mead and Connie Barrett. Okay. And going to closed session. Yes, thank you, closed session.